This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. listening to the Voices of Wrestling podcast with your hosts, Joe Lanza. X out, go listen to some boring podcast where they're afraid of their own shadow. Okay? Don't listen to Joe Lanza. Because Joe Lanza's not changing. And Rich Craig. <laughs> Give me a name. I want to. Who delivers <laughs> this guy in a big spot? Joe, don't yell at me. In the, in the big spot, who delivers better than this guy? Just stop yelling at me. I agree. Yo, you are listening to your favorite wrestling podcast the world's best wrestling podcast i am your host the king of banter the most compelling voice in wrestling media a reasoned and well-explained man the leader of the hardcore wrestling intelligentsia an internationally acclaimed broadcast journalist as heard on bbc radio and a good family man joe lanza and welcome to the voice of wrestling flagship podcast Wow, feels good to get all those monikers in there. Because you know Krejci, who opens up the show every week, refuses to give me uh, my due and give the people what they want, which is all of my monikers. Krejci, of course, not here this week. Off on one of his uh, adventures, another vacation. Which, look, I know it's a bit. And I know we do this every time he goes on one of his vacations, right? But this man really does go on an excessive amount of vacations. This guy thinks he's European because those people never work. He is just constantly on vacation. It's incredible. It really is amazing. These people, Rich and the Nurse, um, I mean, I, what kind of jobs do they have? They never have to be there. I mean, she was just rock climbing in Vegas a couple of weeks ago. Remember that? She goes on, these people go on so many vacations, they go on vacations alone without the other person. It's, it's fucking nuts how much time these people get off of work. Listen, that's great if you can get it. That's fantastic if you can hustle that. But these people are never home. It really is something else. But no Rich Krejci this week. He's off gallivanting. Wait till I tell you where these people went on vacation. You, you will never believe where these people chose to go on vacation this time. And they've gone to some wacky places. I mean, these are people who went to Iceland by choice. So where are these people? Maybe they're in Miami. South Beach, do a little partying, get drunk, hot women, hot times. Nope. Maybe you're thinking, I know where they went, Joe. Acapulco. Nice getaway. It's like you're off the grid. White sandy beaches, delicious food. Just pounds of guacamole. 
made with fresh avocados? Nope. Maybe they need a little romance, you know? It's not too romantic up in Reykjavik, Iceland, right? Rock climbing isn't too romantic. Maybe they went to Paris, France. A little gay Paris, right? Some escargot, the Eiffel Tower, the Louvre, get a little culture, some uppity people, some romance, little, you know, trademark Kreech action back at the hotel with the little German soldier. Nope. Maybe they wanted to just kick back and have a little fun. Forget about everything for a while. The nurse, all stressed out, watching COVID patients die every day. Krejci with his bosses that he doesn't have any respect for in that cubicle is. Maybe they went to Vegas. No cares in the world. You know what they say. What they say is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Don't know if you're familiar with that phrase. Maybe they went to Vegas. A little gambling. A couple of steaks, a little blackjack. Right? Maybe see a show, go see Carrot Top. That was a good show. Don't mock Carrot Top. I've said it before. Very underrated show in Vegas. It's good. You wouldn't think it's good, but it's good. Nah, they're not in Vegas. All right, Joe. Granted, these are like, you know, extravagant vacations. Maybe they opted for something simpler. Maybe they went to like San Diego. Beautiful weather. Trendiest team in baseball taking a Padres game. Go see Fernando Tatis Jr. I don't know what else you do in San Diego. That's all I really got. But I know that people go there. You know who didn't go there? These people. They're not in San Diego. Here is where they went. And I'm not doing shtick. Rich Krejci and the nurse are in Death Valley. Death Valley. Home of Cain the Undertaker. 120 degrees at night. Scorpions running around. Rattlesnakes. Cactuses. Cacti. Red hot sand. Wolves and coyotes in the night. These people went to Death Valley. What kind of vacation is this? Don't you want to relax? Don't you want to go to Miami and look at hot women wearing thongs? Or go to Acapulco, sit back, eat a little guac, hang out on the beach? Gay Paris, take in some culture? Vegas, do a little gambling? Go see Carrot Top? No. Death Valley. 
they willingly chose to go to a desert. I, I just, I don't have any words for this. I don't even know. I, I, I can't even be funny. Like, I, I can't even think of anything funny to say. How is this a vacation? He's got to be literally sweating his balls off. He's in the desert. People die. It's not called Vacation Valley. It's called Death Valley. That implies death happens there. Why? It's 140 degrees. That's why. I have slow-cooked pork shoulder with lower temperatures than those two people are enduring right now in Death Valley, California. Or Arizona. Wherever Death Valley is. Because I don't even know. You know why? Because I will never go to Death Valley. Aren't vacations supposed to be relaxing? What are you doing in Death Valley? Aside from attempting to survive. Avoiding scorpions the size of New York City sore rats. What else are you doing there? Death Valley. Let me have the producer look this up. I don't even know where Death Valley is. Can you pull that up for me? Where is it? I'm told that Death Valley is in, indeed in California. I was correct. It's part of the uh, Mojave Desert. Near the Great Basin Desert. This is... Okay. Death Valley is located in a desert next to a desert. This is where these people went for a little R&R. A desert located in a desert next to another desert. It is one of the hottest places on earth, along with deserts in the Middle East and the Sahara. The fucking Sahara. Google doesn't say that. I said the fucking Sahara part. What the fuck? Are you kidding me? At least if you go to the Sahara, right? You can check out the Nile River. The fucking, uh, what do you call the gimmicks the, that are shaped like the, uh, pyr- the pyramids? The Sphinx. You could go see the Sphinx, which is tricky to pronounce, but I think I got it. That thing's so fucking old that the wind erosion, like it doesn't, it's like a, It's like a dog that wears like a fucking Egyptian cap and he's just like hanging out. But he he doesn't have a nose anymore because of the wind erosion. Things fucking old. I love looking at old things. I would go, you know what? I would go to the Sahara Desert. Provided there was a nice five-star hotel where I can spend 90% of the time. And then I can go with like a tour guide to go see the Sphinx with his wind-eroded nose Go see the pyramid gimmicks. You know, an hour or two a day. Then head back to the hotel. Nice cold drink. See what kind of Egyptian sports are on the uh, satellite dish. 
That's more my speed. These people are in Death Valley, which is a desert inside of a desert next to a desert, which is one of the hottest places on Earth. And there's no Sphinx out there. There's no pyramids. I don't know what the fuck you do in Death Valley, but we're going to find out. Because Krejci is going to come back to the show this week if he does not, in fact, die. Because he is in Death Valley. If he does not, if the heat doesn't get him, or he doesn't get bit by a scorpion, or attacked by a coyote, he'll be back on this show next week. And I'm going to ask him, what do you do when you visit Death Valley? What do you do? Because I'm dying to know. What's the, uh, it's April. What's the temperature in April in Death Valley? It says the average temperature in April in Death Valley National Park, the average high temperature is 147 degrees Fahrenheit. That's not true. But it's really hot. It's not as hot as I thought. It's 90 degrees. Do I need to delete this whole bit? It's only 90 degrees? What the fuck? Does that even count as a desert? The valley, so named by the pioneers who barely survived its hostile landscape in the 1800s, has seen many deaths over the years due to heat stroke and dehydration. Dehydration can cause disorientation and confusion, which, okay, nobody cares. Um, well, yeah, people are going out there and dying. I don't know. That's kind of the last place I want to go on a vacation. You know? I'm not going to go bungee jumping. Do people still do that? That was real big in like the 90s. Bungee jumping. People, like by choice, were like, hey, I'm going to tie myself to a spring and jump off the side of a building. Sounds like a great idea. I cannot wait to do that. What? You fucking out of your mind? Off a bridge, off the side of a cliff. I'd rather go to Death Valley than bungee jump. I will say that. But knowing these people, they might be bungee jumping in Death Valley. That nurse has a death wish. She's crazy. With her fucking mountain climbing gimmick and all that. She thinks she's uh, Alex Honnold or something out there. That crazy guy. I mean, that motherfucker. He climbs these mountains like with nothing. Just... You know, no support. He just climbs up the side of mountains. Like, dangerous mountains, too. That's amazing to me. He's one of the most amazing humans I've ever encountered. That Alex Honnold guy. Whatever his name is. What's the name of that movie? Alex Honnold. Uh, what's the name of that shit? Free Solo? It's great. Um, people say it's terrifying, but it's really not because you know he survives. Like if if you're watching Free Solo for the first time in 19 fucking or 2010, whenever it came out, whatever, and you don't know that the guy's still alive, then it can be, you know, you look at the pictures of this guy just hanging off the side of a cliff. I mean, it's just, you know, but again, not for me. Maybe that's what they're doing out in Death Valley. Anyway, we will grill uh, Krejci on his Death Valley vacation. Sweating his nuts off in the uh, desert inside of a desert next to a desert next week. 
What do we got on this show, though? Get into it. I was a half-hearted get into it. Might edit that out. Um, we've got... Why am I blanking? I really need the run sheet? I do need the run sheet. Kenny Omega. We're going to discuss, hopefully for the final time, because I'm tired of seeing it, whether or not this man has been a net positive for Impact Wrestling Business. Because, believe it or not, there are still people, and I'm not talking about eggs with zero followers who, you know, aren't worth bothering with. I'm not talking about, like, super hardcore, deep Puro nerds who hated the fact that the guy was in New Japan. There's, like, real people who should know better, like people in wrestling media, who are who will still say with a straight face that Kenny Omega has not done anything for Impact Business or hasn't had that much of an effect on Impact Wrestling's business. And I cannot take hearing this anymore. We will break that down and dissect that. Then, of course, we will talk about the Impact Rebellion pay-per-view. Where Kenny Omega defeated Rich Swan. Rich Swan. Called him Rich Swan. Rich Swan, to continue his goal of uh, being the belt collector, he now owns four titles. We'll talk about that show. And the divisive main event. And what I thought about it. Which obviously will be the indisputably correct take. The Thursday TV reviews. That's paywall content. Not this week. We're going to do them right here. That's right. A little taste of the paywall for the free listeners. And I'm going to do a full Thursday TV review show. The same way I do them behind the paywall. Ratings breakdowns. Analysis that you can't get anywhere else. Breaking down impact. Well, not impact. We're not breaking down impact. Breaking down dynamite. Breaking down MLW Fusion. Right here. Free this week and this week only on the flagship. We'll preview New Japan Pro Wrestling, Wrestling Dantaku. And that'll be more of a discussion on why seemingly no one is paying attention to New Japan these days. So I'll have a discussion about that. And then Champion Carnival Catch-Up. We go back to All Japan. I will review the shows from the 24th and the 25th. And... I was planning on getting to the shows on the 20th and 29th, but didn't have time to watch them before I got this show recorded. So we'll talk about the 24th and the 25th and uh, set you up for what's going to happen down the stretch with the All Japan Champion Carnival. So that's also a rough outline of the order I'll be doing these topics. So if there's stuff you don't care about, you know you know where you need to bounce around or where you need to X out of the show. But you really should listen to the whole thing. Because let's be honest, I do tremendous audio. Let's start with Kenny Omega. He's the big story this week. Defeats Rich Swan for the Impact World Title, TNA World Title. Now has four belts to go along with his AAA Mega Heavyweight deal, and of course the AEW World Championship. And you know I've been fighting this both behind the paywall and on this show for what you know really amounts to a number of months now. This idea that Kenny Omega hasn't had much of an influence on Impact Wrestling's business, which was never true and continues not to be true, and in fact is um, entirely the opposite. 
just based on facts. I mean, I'm not going to tell you anything but facts when I go over this segment. But I'm so tired of hearing this from people who really should know better. Analysts. People who do uh, competing podcasts. Podcasts similar to this one out there. Um, that maybe some of you listen to. And, and these people really, they just either haven't studied the numbers. Or what I really think it is with Kenny Omega is it's a matter of there's a lot of people who don't like him. We know that. And some confirmation bias slips in in that any small shred of evidence that allows these people to apply confirmation bias to the idea that Kenny Omega is not a star and not a draw, they will pounce on. For instance, there was a period in February and March where the impact viewership started to trail back down close to where they were before Kenny Omega debuted on February 8th, right? But here's the thing that none of those analysts would tell you as they would insist that Kenny Omega wasn't having much of an effect on Impact's ratings and wasn't a star and wasn't moving the needle beyond the first week. What these people weren't telling you, aside from the fact that they were telling on themselves that they weren't actually watching Impact, was that Kenny Omega didn't even appear on Impact Wrestling. Okay, from the January 19th show until March 23rd. His last appearance was January 19th. His next appearance was March 23rd. He basically didn't appear for all of February and a large chunk of March on Impact. Yet, as Impact's ratings and overall viewership started to tumble, the narrative became, well, that just goes to show. Kenny Omega's not a star. Dude wasn't even on the show. And as I'm going to explain to you guys, the numbers didn't drop as much as you think during that time anyway when he missed a few weeks of the show. But I don't know what people expected Impact to do numbers-wise with Kenny Omega on the show, around the show? Did people think, you know, on Axis TV, the show was going to start doing 500,000 viewers a week? Point twos in the demo? That was never going to happen. So, of course, the only fair way to do this is to view it contextually. Axis TV has their viewer universe, the number of homes that they're in, doesn't match up. To the other shows. You can't compare it to Smackdown on Fox. Or TNT or USA Network. Or any of these places. It's Access TV. And here are some facts. Kenny Omega showed up. On Impact Wrestling on December 8th. To record numbers. 221,000 viewers. 99,000 viewers. In the 18-49 to 49 demo. Obviously up huge from what they were doing. 120,000, 130,000 range. Before Kenny showed up. I think it was something like an 80 or 90,000 total viewer increase. From the week prior. Bottoming, bottoming out at, you know. About 100,000 less total viewers per week. But I think we all agree Kenny's debut was big. The narrative you hear as he hasn't drawn flies since that point in time. And it just isn't true. 
In the month of January, Kenny Omega's segments on Impact Wrestling gained 30,000 viewers. That's 28,000 viewers over the average of what those quarter hours were normally drawing with or without Kenny Omega. In other words, we're not giving him credit for just popping up on the quarter hours that always pop big. These numbers are all courtesy of WrestleNomics, Brandon Thurston, and the work that he does. Well, most of these numbers are courtesy of Brandon. $5, WrestleNomics Patreon gets you all this data. I'm no genius. I'm just reading it off the sheets. Spitting facts. In the month of January, Kenny Omega's segments, and he was part of five in this data set, gained 30,000 total viewers, which is 28,000 viewers above the average of what those demos normally gain or lose. A clear ratings draw in January. Indisputable. And then, as I said, he was off the show until March 23rd. Kenny Omega's segment on March 23rd, his return to Impact, gained 33,000 viewers over the previous quarter hour, which, again, was 29,000 viewers more than what that quarter hour normally gains. So, again, clearly, no pun intended, had a big impact on his return on March 23rd. I'm told by an Impact source that on this past week's show, Kenny Omega's quarter hour had massive gains. And these numbers might not sound big, but you have to remember, this is a show that does under 200,000 total viewers per week. So when your segments are gaining upwards of 30,000 viewers, that's huge, percentage-wise. Those are good gains for Dynamite. Quarter one of 2021 for Impact Wrestling is up 2% in total viewership and 33% in viewers 18 to 49, which obviously is all that matters. 33%. This matches up to what we know to be true about Kenny Omega. He's a huge draw in the 18 to 49. Last week's go-home show for the pay-per-view versus the four-week median of the four weeks prior. Meaning how did last week's show. The go home for the pay-per-view. The return of Kenny Omega to Impact. How did that do. Versus the four weeks prior. Up 25% in the 18 to 49. And as noted. His quarter did very well. I don't have the numbers. An Impact source tells me the quarter did very well. Impact 18 to 49. Over a 13 week. Median year over year. Meaning, how has the last 13 weeks do over the 13 weeks year over year from the year prior? In other words, this is most of the time since Omega has debuted on the show. They're up 52% in 18 to 49 versus the 13 weeks year prior. 52%. Only one other show out of the major wrestling shows is even up, and that's Dynamite, which is up 5% over the same 13-week period last year. Raw, SmackDown, NXT, all down over the 13-week period over the year before. Impact, up 52%. Why do you think that is? 
You go month by month in 2021. There's exactly one show out of the major wrestling shows up every month in 2021 versus the same month in 2020. And that's Impact Wrestling. Up 12% in January. This is 18 to 49. Up 12% in January. Up 6% in February. Up 24% in March. And get ready for this one. Up 136% in April. No other show has been up in 18 to 49 over last year, the first four months of the year. Just Impact Wrestling. In fact, Dynamite's only been up two of those months, February and April. NXT was up big in April. Remember now, we're going up against COVID numbers from last year, early COVID. Raw and SmackDown. Down across the board all four months. Including April. Going head to head with early COVID numbers. So out of the other four shows. There's only three months total. Out of 12 possible months. That were up year over year. Impact. They're up year over year. All four months of 2021. And they're up huge. 136% in April. You're probably saying Joe. They're going up against sandbagged COVID numbers. Everybody is. Dynamite up 39%. It's tremendous. NXT up 27%. Very good. Impact 136%. Again, why do you think that is? Yes, Impact dipped lower than a lot of the other shows did early COVID. But... This is now a five-month trend, four-month trend, rather. Because they were up January through March, year over year. Double digits. So I'm giving you all these numbers, and they mostly cover the period from December through April. And Impact is crushing it, particularly in the 18 to 49. What has changed? What predominantly is the one thing that has changed with impact since December 8th? It's Kenny Omega. Can we stop pretending that this guy hasn't had an impact, no pun intended, on impact's numbers? They're up first a year before. They're up to a more impressive degree than any of the other wrestling shows. His individual quarter hours, if you drill down, have done tremendous numbers. So when you see these people, these imbeciles going on and on about how they're not impressed with what Kenny Omega has done for Impact Wrestling, please direct them to this segment of this show so we can stop this nonsense. They're just ignoring facts. I'm not doing anything but reading numbers off of sheets. Provided by the great Brandon Thurston. In most of these cases. I'm not fabricating anything. I'm doing zero spin. I'm just giving you the numbers. And I'm, I gave you the numbers from six or seven different angles. There's no negative to spin. 
Let's talk pay-per-view. Kenny Omega worked a six-man main event on the Hard to Kill pay-per-view. It is the number two pay-per-view in Impact history since they've left Spike TV. A six-man tag. Not even a singles match. Not impressed? Oh, Kenny Omega, he should be the number one pay-per-view since they left Spike TV. It's Kenny Omega. I thought he was a superstar. Six-man or not. Should have broke all kinds of records. You know what? I don't disagree. Rebellion this weekend. Here is a tweet from Dave Meltzer. From Wednesday. April 28th. And I quote. Impact Rebellion. Blew the quote two words in. Impact Rebellion on one major pay-per-view company service that I just got a full report from. Was the eighth biggest pay-per-view since August. And had nine times the number of buys as Bound for Glory. End quote. Now you may not be impressed with Rebellion being the eighth biggest pay-per-view. And that means everything. Wrestling. Boxing. Jake Paul. Whatever the fuck. MMA. Slap fights. You name it. You may not be impressed by Rebellion being the 8th biggest pay-per-view since August, but you should be. It's Impact we're talking about. They're lucky to sell 5,000 of these things under normal circumstances. Nobody buys Impact pay-per-views. But here's what you should be even more impressed with. Nine times the number of buys as Bound for Glory. Head-to-head, same company, Before Kenny Omega arrived. Or a show that Kenny Omega wasn't on. Because remember, he was on Hard to Kill. In January. He wasn't on Bound for Glory. So this is a direct comparison. Of before Kenny Omega. And with Kenny Omega. Put Kenny Omega. In a singles match. With a good build. With stakes. And it does nine times the number of buys as the last pay-per-view that did not feature Kenny Omega at all. How in the fuck can anybody argue that Kenny Omega is not having a massive impact on Impact Wrestling's business? How can anyone make that argument with a straight face and be taken seriously? If you make that argument, and some of you making that argument might be listening to this. If you make that argument with a straight face, I cannot take you seriously. You are ignoring math. All I have done is read numbers. And I'm not going to call these analysts and pundits out by name because this is in 2015. But they're out there. And they're embarrassing themselves. Stop it. You don't have to like Kenny Omega. You don't have to vote for him for Dave's fucking Hall of Fame if you don't want to. You can tell me I'm a dope for voting for him for Dave. But you can't ignore facts. Don't ignore facts. You can't do that. Television ratings. Check. 
pay-per-view buys. Check. And if we weren't in the middle of COVID and we were selling tickets, trust me, we'd be checking that box too. I've had it with this. Rest assured, Impact this week or next week, we'll do 148,000 viewers or whatever the fuck. And some pundit will be out there starting a thread on a message board or sending out a tweet saying that Kenny Omega is not a star. Book it! So let's talk about rebellion. And we'll start at the top. Kenny Omega versus Rich Swan. Impact world title, AEW world title. Huge match. Don't forget that little uh, TNA world title too that Rich Swan won from the Moose a couple of months back. Because that was on the line too, apparently. Although not pushed as such. Kenny's running around with that one as well. As well as he should be. This is a very divisive match. There's a lot of conjecture over what went down with Rich Swan towards the end of this match. Um, a lot of people, including some insiders, feel that he gassed. There's a lot of people who, in real time, were speculating that he got his bell rung and perhaps was... Uh, either concussed or knocked loopy during the bout. Uh, I It looked to me like he was selling. Okay? You know, just by the way the match was structured, it felt to me like he was selling. Uh, was he gassed? Was he hurt? I don't know. It looked to me like he was selling only because it fit the story they were telling in the match, right? This was not the super high-paced go-go-go Kenny Omega style singles match that we are usually accustomed to. And I've seen some people say that it was. And I don't agree with that. If you go back and watch this match, very deliberate pacing early on. Very deliberate pacing. And this only went 23 minutes. Okay? So this is not one of these one hour Kenny Omega, Kazuchika Okada matches where you have to have deliberate pace because you really can't go hard for an hour or an hour plus in their case. There's a 23-minute, decent length, perfect length, really, for a big pay-per-view main event with, with, you know, double titles on the line. Very deliberately paced. But the story of this match was Kenny Omega delivering massive amounts of punishment to Rich Swan. Rich Swan hanging on by a thread, showing fighting spirit, never say die, and Kenny continually... Throwing knees to his face and beating this man down until Rich Swan could simply stand no more. And because that's the way the match was structured, it didn't have some big, wild, back-and-forth closing stretch with a bunch of near falls for both guys. It was Kenny Omega wearing Rich Swan down to a nub until he finally put him away and Rich Swan couldn't get up or kick out. So to me, 
whether Rich Swan gassed, whether Rich Swan was injured, whether Rich Swan was knocked loopy, or whether Rich Swan was just doing a tremendous job of selling, or whether it was a combination of all or some of the above, it worked for the story and made for a very compelling match. What I'm telling you is, maybe Rich Swan gassed. I don't know. I also don't care. If he had gassed in a match where he was expected to have this crazy back and forth, your turn, my turn, closing stretch, and his execution was off because of it, it'd be a major problem. In this match, the story was Kenny Omega beating the living shit out of this man down the stretch until he could no longer stand. And for that reason, whatever was going on in that ring with Rich Swan, it fit the story they were telling. And the end result was exactly what they were trying to accomplish. So why do I care what the reason is? Now, if you're Rich Swan and you got knocked loopy or injured, he's going to care. If you're Kenny Omega and the guy was gassed, Kenny Omega's going to care. And good on Kenny Omega if that was the case, leading them through the rest of the bout. But if Rich Swan was just out there selling, he did a tremendous job. Look, I don't know the answer. And I'm not going to pretend that I do know the answer. All I know is whatever happened with Rich Swan, it worked. It worked for the story of the match, and I enjoyed the match. I cannot call it a match of the year contender. Why? A couple of very messy spots. I, you know what? I shouldn't say very messy. I'm going to explain why. A couple of messy spots, particularly off the top rope. There was the one-winged angel attempt off the top, which would have been fucking bonkers. I don't know what they were going for. I think it was going to be some kind of reversal or sunset flip off the top by Swan. But Swan kind of lost Omega. But the thing about that spot, and there was one other spot off the turnbuckle where I don't think whatever their wacky plan was, whatever their wacky intent was meant to be, it just didn't come off the way that they meant it to. But in both of those cases, they recovered nicely. Right? They didn't look like Complete shit show botches which ruin your suspension of disbelief. For instance, on one of the spots, uh, one guy fell off and the other quickly went and uh, schoolboyed him. It looked natural. It just looked like, you know what it reminded me of? When Charlotte and Sasha Banks have those sloppy matches where it looks like they're on the verge of one of them breaking their necks because of how sloppy and, and rough around the edges it is. That's what these spots looked like. So I really didn't have a huge problem with them. But, you know, when you have that much sloppiness in a match, I can't call it a match of the year contender. I did think it was a notebook match. I'd go four, four and a quarter. The work was good enough. I thought the drama was good. And I really loved, I really loved the tease of the shenanigans. They teased it in the build. They teased it early in the show. When Tony Khan agreed to the two referees. So right there you're saying, ah. I even tweeted out. We're getting bullshit. We're definitely getting bullshit here. We've got two refs. We've got a million people at ringside. This is going to be a disaster. We're not going to get a clean finish. They got us. What do I always say? Work me. I want to be worked. So they did the ref bump. The impact ref goes down. I think it was Brian Hebner. Is Brian Hebner even with the... For some reason, I think it was Brian Hebner. Who cares? 
girl Hebner comes in. Right? So now you're thinking, oh, well, this is the fucking bullshit. She's going to call it in favor of Omega, and he's going to get a cheap win here because the AEW ref is in his pocket. No. Omega went to use a chair. She took it from him. Wouldn't allow it. We didn't get a bunch of run-ins. None of that bullshit. And the referee simply recovered. And they went on. And we got a clean finish. I loved that tease. They strung all of us along. Made us think we were getting a bullshit finish. And at the end of the day. They gave us the clean finish. And the definitive winner. That they told us we were getting all along. And that I thought added a nice sprinkle of drama into the match. So I enjoyed that. Your mileage may vary. So when you add all that up, I thought it was a very good world title match between Kenny Omega and Rich Swan. And fuck it. I'm feeling generous today, so we're going four and a quarter. How about that? And Kenny Omega's a double champion, quadruple champion. In fact, And quite honestly, if he's going to go collecting belts, I have a suggestion for Kenny Omega. Noah. Please go to Noah. Put us all out of our misery. Namely, Great Muta. KG Muto. Put that guy out of his misery and put all of us out of our misery that have to watch this guy painfully attempt to pro-wrestle with the state of his knees. If I could pick one Kenny Omega dream destination to go collect another belt, it would be Pro Wrestling Noah. That'd be my number one choice. As for the rest of the card, I thought the opener was awesome. I went notebook on that as well. Josh Alexander, new X Division champion, three-way with Ace Austin and TJP. Look at the people in that match. Look at the people in that match. Of course it was good. But it was better than good. It was very good. And we'll see what Josh Alexander can do as X-Division champion. That title's kind of been uh, revolving around TJP for a long time now. Ace Austin came into this as the champ. I think Josh Alexander can bring something a little different to that. But this was a classic TNA slash Impact X-Division opener. Throwback to the old days. It was very good. And the X Division stuff has been good. Got a little messy for a while when uh, Chris Bay and uh, Rojit Raju were, were doing some weird gimmick-heavy stuff. Outside of that, the X Division stuff has been pretty solid for a number of months now. And it's usually a highlight of the pay-per-views, which has really been the case for the entire history of Impact Wrestling. Eric Young's Mystery Man in the eight-man tag with Diener and Joe Doring and Rhino, was W. Morrissey. The former Big Cass, who we last saw at the VSX show WrestleMania weekend. As our, uh, as our boy, who we're collabing with now, Julius Smokes, confused him with Test, who's been dead for a decade. W. Morrissey, look, it's the guy's name. His name's William Morrissey. I don't know why they're using the W and not just William or Bill. I guess Bill Morrissey isn't a very cool wrestling name. It sounds more like an accountant, right? 
Oh, let me give it to my guy, Bill Morrissey. He'll handle this. I guess William Morrissey is kind of a dorky name, too. Okay, I, could, I just talked myself into why they went with W. Morrissey. It's really not that bad. Um, I mean, you didn't have to call him by his name at all. You could have come up with a different name. What was wrong with the Kaz XL gimmick? I mean, it was douchey, but he's a douchey guy. Him and Enzo, right? They're a couple douchebags. So he could have been Kaz XL or some variant of that. I think it was C-A-Z-X-L, you know? I mean, that suits him. But the way he wrestled in this match, he wasn't really presented as a douchebag. He was presented as like a big ass kicker. And he looked pretty good. So hopefully he's got his life straight and uh, has a good second chance here in Impact. Maybe Chris Saban, Eddie Edwards, James Storm, and Willie Mack. Yeah, it's pretty good. Decent match. Everything on this show was pretty decent for the most part. Brian Myers, Matt Cardona. Um, they did the worked uh, leg injury deal with Cardona. He was selling it on Twitter like it was legit and people were buying it. I mean, it, it was obviously the planned story of the match. I don't know what people are thinking. Sending him well wishes. I guess it's good that he worked people. Or maybe I'm just being cynical and he did hurt his leg and then they audibled. I don't know. Sure looked like a worked injury to me. Everybody throwing up the X dramatically and uh, the announcers didn't seem to be thrown off by this, and they were, you know, putting over Brian Myers as being nefarious for taking advantage of the situation. But they basically went out there and had a match from like superstars. You can't take the E out of some of these guys, you know. Brian Myers with the long reverse chin lock. I mean, what are we doing? Then they go to the outside, which is where you would normally take your commercial break, right? And then they did the uh, fake injury spot. So, you know, they did a pay-per-view version of a match that they would have had on Superstars in like 2014. Jordan Grace and Rachel Elring. Another big surprise. They beat Fire and Flava for the women's tag team titles. Probably the least interesting and worst match on the show. So I don't have much more to say about it. Trey Miguel and Sammy Callahan, last man standing. Callahan's always good in these spots. Miguel was good here too. It wasn't great, but definitely, you know, fun plunder. Finn Juice, a lot of people expected them to lose the titles back to the Good Brothers, right? And end their little run here. And, um, you know, I should also say, since I put over Kenny Omega as being an excellent draw, I also want to note that Finn Juice, every time they've wrestled on Impact, uh, that we have data for, okay, their segments have also been big gainers. The Reno Scum match, February 16th, gained 13,000 viewers. An eight-man tag on March 2nd gained 20,000 viewers. Anytime they've wrestled on Impact. Now, when they've had interview segments and pre-tapes, they've lost viewers. But here's the thing about that and why you can't just blindly look at quarter hours all of the time. A lot of interview segments and pre-tapes aren't announced. Matches are. In other words, if you're watching Impact, they're going to say, coming up next, Finn Juice versus Reno Scum. And people know what match you're going to see. When you have backstage segments or interviews or pre-tapes, a lot of times you don't know that's coming. So you can't blame the talent for tanking a quarter hour for a pre-tape or something like that. 
because no one knows that it, you know that you know a match is coming. You don't know that stuff is coming. So I'm impressed by the fact that every time Finn Juice has had a match on Impact, they've gained a shit ton of viewers. So they kept the titles on them, and we're going to see more of them on Impact. And this is a pretty damn good Finn Juice versus Good Brothers match, and I have to tell you, it was traditionally worked. It was traditionally worked with, uh, you know, traditional tag psychology and all that. It didn't set the world on fire. It was a nice little match. Between this match and the Finn Juice match at WrestleMania weekend against Violence is Forever, I, I think they're doing some of the best work in their career. I've never loved this team. They're a team that just exists in New Japan. I'm never excited to watch Finn Juice. And they've just had two matches that exceeded my expectations both times. The Violence is Forever match was probably the best Finn Juice match I've ever seen. And I've seen, like, all of their matches. There's a good chance I've seen all of their matches, or, or 90% of their matches. Because, you know, they don't wrestle outside New Japan. And whenever they're on a 2 versus 2 tag, it's either in a tag league show or a major show that I'm watching. I've skipped some tag league shows here or there. But the point is, I've seen Finn Juice wrestle a lot for a long time. And they're doing some of the best work of their career right now. Deanna Peraza defeats Tennille Dashwood. I thought Deanna was excellent here. I think Tennille, you know, I think most people realize at this point that she's just not very good and and, and overrated. Um, but this match was fine. I thought this was better for a comparison point than the tag team title match earlier in the show. And then, of course, was the main event. So a good little pay-per-view. You know, it had a newsworthy and very good main event. It had a, a very good opener and a lot of good stuff in the middle. There was really nothing terrible on the show. So I think with uh, their biggest pay-per-view since at least the Spike era, they put their best foot forward and did a pretty good job here. And that's all you can do when you have eyes on when you've got extra eyes on the product like they did here for people dropping in to watch Kenny vs. Swan. All you can do is is put together a show like this and put in your best effort. And then, you know, you let the chips fall. Maybe they come back, maybe they don't. But Kenny's going to work some more of these pay-per-views. And I don't think they'll do the numbers that the Swan pay-per-view did. At least because there's nobody in Impact that Kenny can work with. They Look, we said this at the start of this whole angle. The problem with all of this is Impact does not have that tentpole trademark star that you can build towards when it comes to an Omega match. They don't have it. They don't have a big money match for him. So I don't know that there's any other match they could put together that would do bigger business than this. Plus, this was the unification and all of that. But I do think the Kenny Omega pay-per-views moving forward will still do very well. We'll see. And we'll be back. All right, we're back. What do we got here? My bookie. Is that what we're doing? April is here. Baseball has officially begun. It's time for you to shoot your shot and hit a home run and score big on the nonstop action at my bookie. You can bet baseball. You can bet NBA. You can bet NHL. You can bet pro wrestling. You could have bet the Academy Awards if they hadn't happened already. It doesn't matter. What sport you're betting or simply looking for player or game props, 
MyBookie has you covered. Sign up today at MyBookie.ag and use promo code VOICES to secure a deposit bonus up to $1,000. And make sure you use my promo code so they know that I, Joe Lanza, hooked you up. That's promo code VOICES, V-O-I-C-E-S, to claim your first deposit bonus up to $1,000. You deposit $1,000, they give you $1,000. You deposit $50. If you're a ham and egger, they'll give you $50. That's how it works. And then you have $100 to play with or $2,000 to play with. College ball, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, no matter the sport, no matter the minute, live betting, my bookie puts the action in your hands with in-game live betting. And with choices from thousands of lines and odds, you can turn any game day into payday. Cha-ching! Bet anything, anytime, anywhere, my bookie. That's mybookie.ag, promo code VOICES. All right, so let's move on. We're going to do the Thursday TV reviews. If you are a subscriber, this is going to be the same segment that you get every week on the $5 tier. If you are not a subscriber and you like what you hear, VoicesOfWrestling.com slash Patreon. Thursday TV reviews every week. Every week I break down the ratings and then a detailed review of both Dynamite and MLW Fusion. That's every week, every Thursday, Thursday TV reviews, $5 tier. You should be subscribed anyway. A new November to remember just went up this past weekend. We're on episode 16. Those are evergreen, so there's plenty of time to catch up on the most thorough and detailed ECW retrospective podcast anywhere in the world. We start from the very first show in 1992, and we're going to go all the way to Ezekiel Jackson and we're breaking down every piece of television footage that ECW ever produced with all the backstage stories and some of the uh, the lesser-known stories focusing on some of the lesser-known personalities. Yeah, we'll talk about the mass transit incident that you've heard about a thousand times. Yeah, we'll talk about the barely legal pay-per-view. And we'll talk about Kurt Angle being put off by the crucifixion of the Sandman. And all of these stories you've heard a billion times. But what we also focus on on November are some of the lesser personalities and the, uh, the stories that aren't as well known or haven't been told as many times to really give you the feeling and the flavor of the time of the ECW arena and what was going on at various points. There is no other ECW retrospective podcast that's going to talk about people like Stevie Wonderful at the lengths that we talk about them, Cosmic Commander, the Metal Maniac, and right down the line. So uh, if you want something a little different, if you think this is just another one of those ECW review podcasts that talk about the same stories you've heard a billion times on a billion different uh, documentaries and, and shoot interviews and everything else, that's not what November to Remember is. It's gotten uh, massive praise from everybody who's listened to it, and uh, that could also be listened to on the $5 tier, and I'm very proud of the newest episode that uh, just went up this weekend. But again, those are evergreen. You can go back and listen to them starting with episode one. Uh, all of Captain Kreitch's, uh great seasonal stuff that he does. He just wrapped up his uh, WrestleMania randomizer or whatever that gimmick was called with the WrestleMania main events. And that got over big with the subscribers. That's on the $5 tier. I think he's going to do something similar for, uh, for the SummerSlam coming up. And of course, the calendar is about to turn to May. 
So if you're a subscriber, don't unsubscribe because May, of course, is going to be double or nothing, and we're going to do the double or nothing live instant reaction. The AEW pay-per-view instant reactions are by far, we see the numbers, are by far the most popular uh, thing that we do. So if you're on that $10 tier and you were thinking about downgrading the five or taking a month off, don't do it because that AEW pay-per-view is coming up, and you're just going to resubscribe anyway. So uh, don't go through the trouble. Hold on to those $10 subscriptions. If you're on the $5 tier, May is a great time to bump it up to 10 because you're going to get that live instant reaction of the Double or Nothing pay-per-view. And if you're not a subscriber, what the fuck are you doing? You listen to us every week, okay? Uh, it's bonus content, and all it's going to cost you is a fiver. You're not going to miss that 5 bucks. It's like a dollar twenty-five a week or some shit, okay? Just subscribe now. There's three price tiers. We have the $1 trial tier. You can throw us a buck if you just want to support us every now and then. We do some uh, content for a buck. Most of our content can be found on the $5 tier, including these Thursday TV reviews that I'm about to do. November to remember, all of Rich's retro content. Our deep dives, which are also critically acclaimed, and those are also evergreen. You can go back and listen to those at any time. And the $10 tier is for the true psychopath that cannot get enough of us. You can listen to the live flagship every single week, live as we're doing it, unedited, Rich can't cut out any of my nonsense. Uh, you, you, the live chat room where you can interact with us while we're on the air. All of our live content, including the live instant reactions, all of my written content, all of that is on the $10 tier. $10 tier gets you everything. $5 tier gets you just about everything. And if you're not a subscriber, you should subscribe right now. This is the second of four ads on this show today. You are getting deluged with ads. And let me tell you what our sponsors think of you. They think you're balding, they think you can't get a boner, and they think you're a compulsive gambler. That's what they think of our listenership. You're a balding, compulsive gambler who also cannot get a boner. That's what they think of you. What do you think of that? Remember back in the day when we used to get ads for, well, I'm not going to say the names of the companies because they're not paying me. You know, the meal kit ads that we used to get? No more of those. Now it's all about boners and getting your hair back and gambling. And quite honestly, uh, let's be honest, it was always going to come to this. Now, I've got a full head of hair. I have no problems in the boner department. Trust that. I'll get TLB on here if you need me to. I'll do a little gambling. I'll do a little gambling. You know, I'll bet a few bucks here or there. Not opposed to it. Uh, Thursday TV reviews. Of course, I closed the uh, the rating sheet I was looking at. Let me pull that back up. So I have to give credit to Sean Cedor, voice of the wrestling staff member. He's been here a long time. He's our ROH reviewer. Does a great job. Writes a bunch of other stuff too. Good kid. Went to Penn State. Uh, very polite. Everybody loves him. He was in the Voices of Wrestling Slack earlier this week, and Sean had noted that he thought Dynamite was going to struggle this week because of President Biden's address to the uh, Joint Session of Congress. And let me tell you, in that Voice of the Wrestling Slack where we organize and decide who's going to write what and we get all of our shit straight from a site standpoint, but mostly it's just all of us shit posting. That's really what goes on in there, to be completely honest. Um, 
everybody in the Voice of the Wrestling Slack, and somehow there's like 40 people in there. I don't know who half of these people are. I'm like Roger Sterling on Mad Men. Rich just keeps adding people, and I don't know who the fuck any of them are. Like Roger Sterling would come out of his office on Mad Men and be like, who's that guy? And then, uh, you know, Ted Chaw or, uh, or, or Don Draper would be like, Roger, he's worked here for six years. And Roger would just shrug his shoulders and like, eh, I'm going to go drink in my office. That's me. I don't know who any of these people are. But we're in the Voice of the Wrestling Slack the other day with Ken Cosgrove and the rest of the gang. And um, I've got Mad Men on the mind because um, my wife has been watching for the first time and I've been re-watching. What a tremendous show. It is the best show of all time where nothing ever happens. Nothing ever happens on Mad Men. There is zero plot development ever, but it's like the most compelling show of all time anyway. It's incredible. I don't want to get off on a Mad Men tangent though. But point here is, in the Voice of Wrestling Slack, it's mostly shit posting. And Sean proposed this, and we piled on him like you would not believe. Sean, nobody gives a fuck about President Biden addressing the joint session of Congress. Sounds boring. No one cares. It's not Trump. There's no train wreck appeal to it. It's dull. I think I responded with just holding down the Z button on my uh, keyboard. That was my response to Sean when he said that President Biden's address to the joint session of Congress was going to hurt dynamite this week. I wasn't buying it. Apologies to Sean Cedor. Dynamite. 889,000 total viewers and a .33 in the demo. Now, uh, that demo number really isn't that bad when you compare it to the non-presidential address stuff. The top five, six, the top six shows on cable on Thursday night were the presidential address. And Dynamite finished right where it always does among non-news shows. Third, the challenge with their first of two recap shows. Remember, it's over, but they're doing their recap shows. A .35 in the demo, 611,000 total viewers. So they were hurt as well. And there was an NBA game that aired at 743 on ESPN that did a .34, just edging out AEW. And 920,000 viewers. Again, doing about 20 or 30,000 more viewers than AEW from a total viewer perspective as well. And then AEW was third, 10th overall, third among non-Biden content. Joe Biden, the new demo god. I didn't think anybody would watch this. Apparently I was wrong. Who are these people who normally would watch an NBA game or the Challenge or AEW or Reels Housewives in New Jersey or whatever the fuck? Who decided last night, you know what? Real Housewives can wait. I'll get to it on the DVR. Wrestling, not interested. You know what I'm going to check out tonight? Joe Biden addressing the joint session of Congress. Sounds great. 
I'm going to order a pizza, crack open a cold one, and enjoy me some Joe Biden. This is exciting stuff. I am going to rush home from work, stop off at the store, grab a rotisserie chicken and a 12-pack of Coke Z's and get ready for some hot Biden action. There are people who did this last night. Who are these people? As Jerry Seinfeld would say, why would anyone sit down and watch this? I don't watch anything. I don't care. But I understood why people watch Trump. Because he's a train wreck waiting to happen. He's a massive ratings draw. Right? People were really into the idea of Joe Biden just droning on to Congress last night? To this degree? It's crazy. Millions upon millions of people watching this shit. This was not a State of the Union address. This was not uh, him addressing some giant news story. This was just some dopey joint session of Congress. How boring does that sound on its face? The joint session of con- I'm already asleep. I'm not even done with the sentence. You say, Joe Biden is addressing the joint session of Congress. I'm asleep before the end of the word Congress. Who are these people who made this choice? No NBA for me tonight. Let's hear Biden talk torts. Who, who are these people? Rubbing their hands together. I've been waiting for these Joe Biden policy updates. This is exciting stuff. I'd rather go to Death Valley. I'd rather hang out in Death Valley with the scorpions and the rattlesnakes and the cacti and the cacti and the creatures than watch Joe Biden address the joint session of Congress. But the viewers have spoken and it dominated cable. Dominated. So you got to put that dynamite number in perspective. When I saw it pop up on the timeline, I was like, whoa. They ate shit this week. Then I pulled up the chart and I was like, Sean Cedor was right. I didn't even consider the Biden thing. But I saw the number come up. I just thought they ate shit. So, bad job out of me. Bad job out of me. Um, you know. Of course, the week that I'm trying to sell subscriptions with my fantastic ratings analysis, I couldn't have been more wrong. And good job out of Sean Cedor. He nailed it. So, you know, you kind of throw the number out. We all knew that next week is the big one anyway. Blood and guts. And they couldn't have had a better build to it. And we'll get to that when we review the show. As far as NXT goes, they did another .22. That means for a solid month, They've been either 0.22 or 0.23 in the demo. Um, They were down a little bit in total viewers, but so what? They did the 0.22. That's where they live now. That is where NXT lives now, 0.22. That's what they did in the lead-up to Mania. That's what they did coming out of Mania. And that's what they've done every week going unopposed on Tuesdays. So you can see the benefits. Now, with the NHL package going to Turner, this is what's interesting. I'm going to tell you what's interesting about that. That means no hockey on USA next season or moving forward. And that could mean no hockey on USA later this year. Because remember, 
The reason NXT was moved to Tuesdays, Nick Khan can spin this all he wants. He's full of shit. The reason NXT was moved to Tuesdays to begin with was to clear Wednesdays for the NHL playoffs later this year. Right? Because the idea was NBC was going to put the NHL playoffs on Wednesdays, okay, uh, on USA, and off of that dead network, NBC Sportsnet, that they're closing down at the end of the year. But now that NBC is out on hockey and it's going to Turner, right, there's no reason to air those games on USA anymore. You can leave them on NBC Sportsnet and let them die. So with that opening, will WWE and USA move NXT back to Wednesdays to continue fucking with Dynamite now that Dynamite has shown that they're doing massive numbers without NXT's counter-programming? That's what we have to wait and see. That's what we have to wait and see. It'll tell us what's more important to WWE now. Doing those .22s, and USA to be fair, doing those .22s instead of their .14s that they were doing on Wednesdays, or cutting down the competition as much as possible for those next round of television negotiations and keeping Dynamite off of Raw's ass. That is why NXT was on Wednesday to begin with. Okay, Don't listen to idiots who believe the spin. It was to cut down Dynamite to keep them off of Raw's heels for the next round of negotiations. Television. That's why. How important is that to USA? How important is that? We know it's important to WWE. But at one point, does USA put their foot down and say, hey, look, we're paying you for this. We gave you a new contract. We want the bigger number. You want to fight them and put something else on Wednesday? Let's talk. But we want the bigger number. At what point does USA say that? And that may be what... Because if it were up to Vince McMahon, NXT would have been back on Wednesday this week. Are you kidding me? You know, don't listen to that Nikon spin. Very smart man. It's spin. Now, he had said in the investor call that they didn't expect NBC to be in on hockey. And he was right. And Nick Khan is always two steps ahead when it comes to the media stuff. We talked about Big Dick Nick a couple weeks ago. But here's the thing. If Big Dick Nick knew that NBC was going to be out on the hockey, he knew that Turner was in on it. He probably knew that Turner was going to get the package, right? So this is two steps ahead spin when Nick Khan is also telling you it was a strategical move to move NXT to Tuesday nights. Because he knew all of these dominoes were going to fall. So he's getting out ahead of the spin two steps ahead, right? By saying it was a strategical move. So can they move it back to Wednesday without showing ass? What happened to your strategical move? Or did he think that there was a chance that Turner would move Dynamite? Possibly Tuesday, where they were going to be originally Tuesday Night Dynamite. And then WWE can play Woe Is Me again. Oh, we were on Tuesdays first. And this time actually be right about it. Unlike their cries of we were on Wednesdays first, which we all know is bullshit. You know how we know that's bullshit? Because when they thought it was going to be Tuesday Night Dynamite, okay, uh, 
they were trying to get NXT on two. They were negotiating with FS1 and everybody else. Couldn't get the deal done. And then they followed NXT to Wednesdays. And got a two-week jump on them. But a lot of moving parts now with hockey. Now, we had an interesting quote from Tony Khan. He went on Busted Open and he said, he has a contract for two and a half more years for Wednesday nights. And if Turner wants to put him on another night, he'll listen, but it has to be a good deal for them, meaning AEW. So it doesn't look like Dynamite will be moving. And if they do, they're going to be compensated because their contract explicitly states Wednesday nights for at least two and a half more years, the duration of the deal. Now remember, the people he negotiated the deal with are gone. So he's dealing with a new set of people here. And if they value the NHL more, which they probably do, they're paying a hell of a lot more for it. $200 million plus for the NHL, $45 million for Dynamite. Despite the fact that Dynamite week in, week out is going to do a bigger number, both demo and total viewers, than the NHL games. The problem is, as you know, if you're a longtime wrestling fan, wrestling has zero advertiser clout. They think that we're all mouth-breathing idiots, uneducated, everything else. They're right. And you can't get the same ad rates for wrestling that you can for even something like the NHL, which isn't super prestigious in the sports world, but blows away pro wrestling in that regard. So the lower-rated hockey stuff is more prestigious than the higher-rated wrestling stuff. So if Turner wants hockey on Wednesday for some reason, it was on Wednesdays on NBC. That doesn't necessarily mean it'll be have to be on Wednesdays on Turner. Maybe they have to sit down at the negotiating table and hammer something out and convince Tony Khan to move. But he certainly implied that they're going to have to pay up if they want that to happen. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. I don't have any predictions on this. It sure seems like it's not going to be easy for Turner to get Dynamite off of Wednesdays even if they want to. And who knows if they want to. They've got a show now. That's doing, uh, you know, somewhere around a point four in the demo. Is second or third on the night every Wednesday night in the demo. Right? Unopposed now. Maybe they want, why, they could be in the room saying, no, fuck that. We're not, we're not, our Wednesdays are good. We don't want to put these guys on Tuesdays and cut into their audience again. Why? Just leave them on Wednesday. If that's the case, and hockey's not coming to NBC, I'd be stunned if WWE doesn't counter-program them again on Wednesdays, either by moving NXT back over or by, you know, this, this Gabe Evolve project or something, especially with the huge numbers they did the last two weeks. And, you know, we'll see next week with blood and guts. So uh, that's kind of the lay of the land and where we're at with that. Let's review Dynamite, which I thought was a very good Dynamite. Once again, a very good Dynamite. We open up. With Hangman Page versus Brian Cage. And Cage attacks Hangman Page during his entrance. Before the match begins, Dark Order comes out, runs off Team Taz, and the match is on. The problem here is because Hangman got attacked before the match began, he came into this weakened, and we had ourselves what I consider an upset. Right? Dark Order's running off Team Taz, but Brian Cage powerbombed Hangman on the ramp while this was all going on. And that's what really took it out of him. So um, the big spot here was Hangman doing the moonsault off the top to the floor. That was the first big bit of offense he got. So he he gets Cage back in the ring. 
He goes for the buckshot lariat, but Cage catches him on his shoulders and gives him a Death Valley driver. Just an incredible spot. Looked great. And then uh, he hits a buckle bomb and the drill claw. I think everybody watching was waiting for Hangman Page to kick out, and he didn't. So Brian Cage defeats Hangman Page. As clean, quote-unquote, as you're going to get from a heel. Uh, you know, look, he attacked him before the match, and that's the out. But he lost. That's pro wrestling. I saw some people complaining about this. Ah, the interference. Listen, no one ever claimed AEW was going to be Pancras. Okay? This is pro wrestling. As long as you're not doing it every match, I have no problem with this, and neither should you. They told you a little story here. Cage beat him, and he kind of beat him fair and square, and you got to give him his credit, but he attacked him before the match. So we'll see what happens if this, these, you know, you're supposed to be thinking, we'll see what happens when these guys meet. And, you know, Hangman Page isn't powerbombed on the ramp before the match. That, you know, it's pro wrestling. Nothing wrong with that. Like anything else, as long as you don't overdo it. So we had the Elite in a limo. Remember last week they were in the trailer. And they were talking about how they're not scared of John Moxley. They're not scared of Eddie Kingston. We're not afraid. And then they hear a horn. Like they heard last week and they all jumped. And they acted scared. This is all corny. But not in a way that, uh, that crossed the line or anything like that. It was just Nakazawa who was driving the limo. Beeping the horn. Uh, Kenny says that if Eddie Kingston wants a piece of anybody in the elite. He's got to go through his goon squad first. So he will be facing Nakazawa later in the show. Kingston will be. And if he can get through Nakazawa, then he could face one of us in this limo. So that was the setup for Eddie Kingston versus Michael Nakazawa. We had the Seidels versus the Bucks. This was a title eliminator. If the Seidels were victorious here, they will have earned a tag team title shot. If you remember, Matt Seidel had a title eliminator against Kenny Omega about a month or so ago. First, he had to get through Nakazawa. Then if he was able to beat Omega on Dynamite, he would earn himself a title shot. He was in the same position here with his brother Mike and uh, against the Bucks. And look, this was a different style Bucks match. Heel control up to the commercial break, right? A little less action, at least in the early part of the match, the first half of the match. Less go, go, go. Heel control. The Seidels were excellent. I've been, listen, you guys know, I've been uh, talking up the Seidels since they debuted. This is a really cool uh, mid to lower mid-card babyface tag team. Matt Seidel looks great. He looked great against Kenny Omega. He looked great in this match. How well has this Matt Seidel signing turned out since he fell off the turnbuckle in his debut? He has been phenomenal against Omega and against the Bucks in this little feud that the Seidels have going with the Elite. And I love the layered feuds in AEW. It's different. Their main line feud is Moxley. But here you have the Seidels who have this feud going with the Elite as well. It affords the Elite opportunities to beat people on TV, whether it's Kenny Omega or the Bucks, without burning out the main line feud that they're in. It's just really good booking. And it's the kind of stuff that not enough people pay attention to or praise. We're too busy paying attention to how many people are on the screen or how much is happening on the show or how fast-paced the show is. And we're not paying attention to great little booking ticks like this, which set them apart from their competition. And it's smart booking. 
And it's good booking. A lot of these pundits are focused on the wrong things. They just are. And we heard it again after this show in a lot of circles. Oh, too much has so much happened on Dynamite. It's just too much. Why? It's a high action, high energy show where a lot of shit happens. Good. Another complaint, a new complaint that I heard this week. Oh, they don't do any video recaps on Dynamite. Good. You want endless video recaps and packages? You want video recaps of shit that happened right before the commercial break? You got Monday Night Raw and Friday Night Smackdown for that. They will give you enough video package. Believe me. You'll get all the recaps that your feeble brain needs watching those shows. I don't want recaps. I'm watching the show. I know what happened before the commercial. Why? Because I was fucking watching the show. Someone made a great point on Twitter. I'm sorry if I'm not crediting you. I don't remember who you were, and I can't look it up right now. This is a relic from the Monday Night War. That's what all of these recap and video packages are. Where they something happens on Raw, they go to commercial, they come back, and you get a four-minute recap of what just happened before the this was this is a relic of the Monday Night War when they were afraid that people switched over to Nitro and then came back and missed what happened before the commercial so they'd show you and they never dropped the habit even though they won the war that's what it is you don't need it I'm glad that Dynamite very rarely does recaps who misses them do you really miss them even if you're one of these people who say, oh man, you know, Dynamite doesn't do recaps. Think about this for a second. Do you miss them? Do you require them? Or are you once again talking about, are you once again telling ghost stories with the mythical casual viewer? It's WWE derangement syndrome. And we're all victims of it to some extent. No one needs these endless recaps. Dynamite's doing just fine without them. It's refreshing not to have all these recaps. They cram more stuff into the show. Why? Because they're not wasting 12 minutes on recaps. There's action and things happening on Dynamite. And I've said this from the start. From the start of AEW. I want them to be different from WWE in every way that's humanly possible. That was the most important aspect of AEW to me. Being different than WWE in every way humanly possible. And if that means no recaps and video packages, good. You can do it different. Don't be afraid because it's different. Yes, a lot happened on this show again. That's why it was good. Things happen on shows that are good. When it's too much, I'll let you know. This show could have used some more stuff, to be honest. Less packed than usual. I want the show to be exciting and good. Why wouldn't you want that? So 
So after the commercial break, then the match picked up, and it was, you know, it was awesome. Matt Seidel, like I said, looked incredible. He ran wild uh, once, uh, you know, the hot tag spot. Then there was, uh, the finish was a low blow on Mike Seidel. Matt got thrown out of the ring, and then they hit the BTE trigger on Mike and put him away. Really good. Borderline notebook. Just, you know, great stuff. Four pros. You know, Mike Seidel, he doesn't look, that guy's solid as fuck. He doesn't look out of place at all. And Matt really, with this Omega and, and, and Buck stuff, he just, it looks like vintage Matt Seidel. He's just such a great guy to have on the roster. Kazarian and Chris Daniels come out. And uh, Chris Daniels cut a very good promo. He said, we were looking forward to wrestling our friends, but you guys aren't our friends anymore. You're just a couple of assholes. They said they're undefeated since they said they would retire if they lost. And they want a title shot. So we're finally addressing that little storyline they set up on the fucking dentist chair or whatever Britt calls her interview show, which I believe was on Dark. Um, And I don't think these guys have wrestled on Dynamite, but they're undefeated and they want their title shot. And Chris Daniels was very good here. So we had another segment with Jade Cargill, the free agent, saying that all the managers want her services, but really they just want her money, and they're going to have to come with a good offer if they want her services. And once again, getting over her catchphrase, I'm that bitch. We had Orange Cassidy versus Penta. Good match. Good, solid match. Alex Abrahantes hopped on the... uh, the rampway again with the mic and cut the promo on orange. And I thought we were going to get another shitty finish like we got last week, but they basically, they paid off the finish from last week. So orange attacks Alex and pulls him into the ring. The mic goes flying. Trent gets a hold of the mic, right? So orange Cassidy, uh, with the referee, not looking, Trent gives him the mic. He knocks out Pentagon and, uh, he scores the pin. So they get revenge on the mic shot from the week before and Orange beats Penta. So I was prepared to rant and rave about another bullshit fucking uh, mic finish. But it was the the uh, the heels getting their comeuppance. And the baby faces getting their revenge. So I didn't have a major problem with this. You know, for a little mid-card feud. Which is what we have going on here. The other thing about the best friends death triangle feud that I think is notable is these guys have been feuding for a few weeks now, and basically they have a match on every show, including Dark. I know some of you don't watch Dark, but we just had Chuck Taylor versus uh, Ray Phoenix on Dark. And despite the fact that these two teams wrestle basically on every show, we haven't had a rematch yet. There's so many different combinations of singles matches and tags. You can do a trio, and they have yet to do the same match twice. Which, again, if you think about it, you don't get a lot of rematches on Dynamite. They don't inundate you with the same matches over and over. It's very rare. You might get one on a Dynamite in a pay-per-view. You might get one on a Dynamite. and then, But, you know, every time these two teams face off, it's a different combination of guys. Which keeps everything fresh. And you don't feel like you're watching the same thing or the same match over and over. Again, this is good booking. And it's the kind of stuff, unfortunately, that no one's talking about because we're focused on the wrong things. We're focused on the show being formatted and structured and paced differently and being afraid of that rather than embracing it. 
The formatting and the pacing of the show is part of the reason why it's good every week. Stop fighting it. Now, I will agree to some extent that they don't always let things breathe, especially on these taped shows, right? Uh, you know, they get out of segments a little too quickly and get into the next before you really have a chance. That's a legitimate critique, I think, especially with the tape shows. Brit and Rebel Not Reba. Brit, now that she's number one contender, is a huge fan of the win-loss ranking. She calls them logical and fair, and she is just so great. And she really should probably win the title this time. I know I've said that before, and then she didn't win the title, and I was like, ah, you know what, I was wrong. That was right. I really think she should win the title this time. Uh, they've peaked her to perfection, and uh, I think the Thunder Rosa match really made her, and it's time to put the title on her. Sheeta, nice little champion, got him through some tough times, but Britt's the star. Then we had the Pinnacle Inner Circle face-off. Chris Jericho, top of the hour again. He's the guy. Uh, this is several weeks in a row where we've had Chris Jericho at the top of the hour, Darby Allen in the main event. We've talked about it the last couple weeks. Not going to repeat all my same talking points. We have a lot to get to. But top of the hour once again, I think they came down to the ring at, at a 7 to the hour. And then the segment obviously ran through the top of the hour. And uh, Jericho spoke last. And this fucking ruled. I don't know what kind of number Blood and Guts is going to do. I feel like it's going to do well. But if there's anything fair in this world, and if builds and promo have anything to do with how well a match does, they'll do 2 million viewers next week. I don't think they're going to do 2 million viewers. Don't go blasting on Reddit that I said they're going to. But you get the idea. Because this was great. Um, and everybody was good here. Sean Spears says, we're not doing a coin toss. you know, And he's getting in the face of Sammy Guevara. Sammy Guevara tells Sean Spears, you've been a failure everywhere you've been. Nobody's scared of you. FTR telling Proud and Powerful, they don't want this kind of match. They're goofy uh, ass kissers of Chris Jericho, and this is a serious match where people can get hurt. MJF telling Jericho, you come out here every week, your eyes are bloodshot, you look exhausted. And it's true, Jericho does eyes... You know, people meme that, Jericho's bloodshot eyes. A.W., always leveraging things into the part of the story. And Jericho referencing that. You look exhausted. Your eyes are bloodshot. You're not ready for this. And then Chris Jericho took that mic, and he showed everybody in that ring how it's done. And all of their promos were good. But Chris Jericho was God-tier this week on that stick. I don't even have a superlative. I usually say, knocked it out of the park. This was better than that. This was a guy who knew he had to cut a money promo and has done it before, and he got in that ring and cut a money promo. This all felt intense. It all felt real. And what the fuck? I am ready for this match. Eddie Kingston comes down to the ring. He says he's not wrestling Nakazawa. Stop this sports entertainment crap. I'm not wrestling this dude. 
He's calling out Kenny Omega. Nakazawa attacks him with the laptop. But uh, quickly, they're able to take advantage when Moxley runs out as Omega and Don Callis are up on the stage. They threaten to break Nakazawa's ankle if Kenny Omega doesn't agree to face them. To which Kenny Omega, of course, the cowardly heel, he says, go ahead and break it. He knew what he was getting into. Willing to throw his friend under the bus to avoid the confrontation with the baby faces who want to kill him. So Moxley made his entrance by beating up. Uh, he's going to bring out. See, Omega was going to bring out Brandon Cutler, but Moxley had beaten up Brandon Cutler. So I skipped a few small details. And then uh, finally they get Kenny in the ring. And then they're threatening to break his ankle. And they uh, they blackmail Don Callis into agreeing. So next week it's going to be Eddie Kingston. It's going to be John Moxley against Kenny Omega and Michael Nakazawa. So they are able to get their hands on Kenny Omega, presumably next week. Also, this meant that it's not just a one-match show. A lot of people thought Blood and Guts was going to be a one-match show, okay? Because you got to set up the double ring and the cage and all that, but they're probably going to tape some matches beforehand and then uh, just go live with the with the Blood and Guts. And actually, I do think that's the case because they uh, sent something out to the ticket holders offering refunds if they were expecting a whole card. It's a whole thing. I never expected it to be a one-match show. You can't do that match for two hours. It's overkill. It's too much. Okay? A match like that cannot be two hours. In fact, it works against the psychology of the match. Because if it's this super dangerous match, how are you able to fight for two hours? Or an hour and a half? Or whatever it is. So, I never thought it'd be a one-match show. And it's not going to be. Next up, we had Taz. He says, Brian Cage should now be the number one contender. Because he beat the number one contender. Christian Cage interrupts. And he had a lot to say to Taz. He says Taz is living vicariously through Team Taz. Is basically what he's saying. And he's leading all these young wrestlers down the wrong path. And he goes, if you want to send them at me one by one, go ahead. They're all going to learn a lesson because I'll beat every single one of them. So I cannot wait for Christian versus Ricky Starks. I cannot wait for that fucking match. And I hope it's on a pay-per-view. And I hope they get 20 minutes. I'll settle for TV. But I would really like to see that, you know, with the rope that pay-per-view provides you. It's not just time-wise, but you don't have to deal with commercials either. We had Penelope Ford versus Chris Statlander. Pretty good. Pretty good match. Statlander looks healthy. She looks to be in great shape. Penelope Ford is underrated. Um, and they had a nice little match. We had a Preston pre-tape. Preston Vance. He wants that TNT title. He wants it for the Exalted One. He wants to bring it back to the Dark Order. And this actually got me a little more into a match that really I wasn't into. So this was a nice little pre-tape that they ran here. But you notice that unless it's Jericho or MJF or Moxley or somebody like that at that level, the Bucks, Omega, with Dynamite, whether it's a a promo or a pre-tape, if it's not someone who's at the superstar level, It is 30 seconds. It is in and out. They, you know, they just have their philosophies and their strategies. I've been, I've been telling you guys for months and months, they believe that matches hold the viewers, which is why Dynamite's matches uh, seem like they're long and you can cut some time off all of them, right? They always feel like the match, their internal philosophy is matches hold the viewers. 
promos, video packages, everything else loses viewers. You have to do them. You got to build stories. You got to get personalities over. But like you notice here, this was so quick and in and out because they know that people are going to see press 10 Vance on the screen and start flipping off. Not giving the finger, but flipping the channel off. Seeing what's going on in the NBA game. What's wacky Joe Biden up to over on MSNBC? So they keep it short and sweet unless it's the top guys because they know the top guys are going to be compelling and hold those viewers. Whereas people are going to see a mid-card guy or a lower-card guy. Think of the last time on Dynamite you saw a mid-carder or a lower-card uh, guy or girl in the ring with the mic cutting a promo. You can't think of one because they don't do it. They don't throw Big Swole or you know, uh, whoever the fuck, Jack the Jungle Boy, into the ring and give them a mic and let them talk about their current... They don't do that. It's That's reserved for the big stars. These mid-carders, these undercard people, short and sweet. Make your point, get out of there. And I think that's why a lot of people feel like Dynamite is, that's, is such a high-paced show and they're cramming so much in. They're right, it is a high-paced show. It's a high-energy show by design. They're not going to let Press 10 Vance talk for four and a half minutes. He's going to get his 30 seconds to make his point. They're going to move on to the next thing. And personally, I feel like Dynamite being a high-energy show where a lot of cool stuff happens is a positive, not a negative. Because my feet are not stuck in cement for how television has been done for the last 20 years. We had QT, Nick Camarado, and Aaron Solo versus Billy Gunn, Dustin, and Lee Johnson, who I think is going to be a megastar. I mean, that's not a hot take. I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, he just has it. That thing, he's got it. And of course, he took the pin here. That was going to go without saying. Anthony Agogo gives the uh, gut punch to Lee after he had a dive to the outside to Lee Johnson. Billy Gunn came around to save. He still had his uh, ribs taped up from the last time a go-go punched him. And a go-go took him out with another body blow as well. So they're really putting a go-go over with these body blows every single week. As well they should. So he rolls Lee Johnson in the ring. Uh, QT does the blind tag to Aaron Solo specifically so he can steal the pin. And he does. So QT Marshall steals the pin and wins the, the match for his team. All hell breaks loose. Uh, breaks loose. Nick Camarado comes in and ducks dust and decks Dustin with the bull rope with the bell attached. The old Stan Hansen gimmick. So those two are going to have a singles match at some point, and that's going to be great. Uh, Austin and Colton gun run down. They attack QT Marshall. QT he hightails it out of there. He's like, "Fuck this! I want nothing to do with this brawl. I'll let these young kids get in this uh, wacky brawl." He's headed back toward the Nightmare Factory bus. What he doesn't know is Cody's on the bus. We haven't seen Cody since they took him out. So Cody comes out of the bus. He's beating the shit out of QT. He gets him on top of the bus, and he's got him in a figure four leg lock on top of the bus. This was a fucking riot. I love this storyline. People who were like, ah, how can you push QT Marshall on TV? You were all wrong. This fucking rules. Okay? He's not being presented as some kind of threat. This is just a great story. It's about the young wrestlers. It's not about QT. And Cody and QT are going to face off next week. And I don't know if this is going to be the end of it. I don't know if this is the week that Cody hits that crossroads in the center of the ring and puts this geek away. 
And I hope it's not, because I'm really enjoying all of this. I really am. And obviously what they're setting up is the big dramatic spot where a go-go threatens to punch Cody, like he's done the last two weeks to the other opponents. That's what they're setting up here. Okay? So I have to go back and be fair about the Billy finish, which I didn't like the Billy Gunn finish. I thought QT should have beat him clean. But it has now played out, and I will eat my words. Because I think they're setting up the big spot next week where a go-go takes a shot at Cody. And we'll see if he gets it off or not. And I'll probably determine whether QT beats Cody or not. I'd have QT beat Cody. I would have him beat him the first time. I think this is a good program, and I think it's going to do a lot for the guys underneath QT. So I enjoyed that segment. I really did. Now we must talk about this Anthony Agogo tweet. You don't know what I'm talking about? I'm going to tell you the tweet. Because he is now on the Dumb Jock Wrestler watch list. That's right. We're keeping an eye on Agogo. There is Dumb Jock Wrestler potential here. Listen to this tweet. Someone tweets at Agogo. They tag him. Is that Balrog from Street Fighter or Anthony Agogo? I could have swore I saw his fist light up, baby. End quote. Agogo responds. And I quote. <clears throat> I don't know who it is because I don't play Game Boy, mate. I'm not a child. I'm a grown-ass man. I pay me bills. I beat people up. I have sex with me wife. You know, big boy shit. The governor. End quote. Let's break down this tweet. This tremendous tweet by a go-go. It's top-tier dumb jock wrestler stuff. Number one, he refers to anything involving video games as Game Boy. You don't know how much I love that. Balrog from Street Fighter. He responds, I don't play Game Boy. This is like your grandmother calling everything Nintendo, no matter what it is. You're playing Xbox. Oh, you're playing the Nintendo. That's the energy here. A go-go just calls everything Game Boy. You can tell. Then he mentions how much of a man he is. He mentions paying bills. He mentions beating people up. And he mentions fucking his wife. This is the dumb jock wrestler energy that I crave. He's going right down the checklist. This is what we need more of in wrestling. More Anthony Agogos. Less Yeezy Cons. This is what we need. Davy Richards once said, Humans were put on the, in this world. I botched it already. Humans were put in this world to do two things. Fight and fu reproduce. Of course, the phrase is fight and fuck. He caught himself and said reproduced. That was on a Davy documentary. Tremendous quote. Same energy here. I pay my bills. I beat people up. I have sex with my wife. You know, big boy shit. No Game Boys. Just tremendous. Love me some governor. 
Hey, Governor, what's the lemon and lime? Oh, I caught a crank, masturbate. That's Cockney talk. That's two guys having a conversation. Hey, friend, what time is it? And the other guy's saying, oh, it's 8.15. Love the Cockneys. Um, what do we have next? Oh, they announced some stuff for next week. Cody QT. Moxley defending the IWGP US title. Yuji Nagata. May 2nd. May 12th. My bad. May 12th. Next week. There's no show May 2nd. Next week's show. Blood and Guts. May 5th. And then the week after. Moxley Yuji Nagata, U.S. title. Nice surprise there. Forbidden door, wide open. It's not forbidden anymore. We need to stop saying forbidden door. There's nothing forbidden about this anymore. It's just a regular thing. Uh, Kip is in the back. He wants to find Miro and hash all this out. He finds Miro in a back uh, room by a uh, some kind of uh, loading dock door or something. There's a chain attached to the ceiling. Right? And uh, Miro immediately attacks him, kicks his ass, chokes him with the chain, throws him into the loading dock door, and then uh, breaks his arm inside of the, uh, inside of the regular uh, door to get into the room. Slams his arm in the door and breaks it. Then he embraces Kip and says, you know, basically, I had to do that. No one's going to get in my way of winning titles around here. I love Miro! No more Mickey Mouse pajamas. No more video game bullshit. All business. We've been waiting for this. And it has arrived. And it's great. And he's going to beat Darby Allen for that TNT title. And it's going to be phenomenal. Picture Darby Allen versus this version of Miro in your mind's eye. Do it. You know that's going to be great. So our main event was Darby Allen versus Press 10 Vance. I've seen some people say that this is a weak main event. Blaming this for the, uh, the, the rating. The rating has 100% to do with Joe Biden. Do not fool yourself. Everything on TV was down. And the Biden, you know fucking snoozer speech, whatever the fuck it was, was what, I mean, that's the explanation. Everything on TV was down. And everything finished right where it normally finishes when you remove the Biden stuff. So Biden heard everything. Um, was this a super strong main event? No, but it's Darby. And I think Darby has reached a point where it doesn't matter who he wrestles. We'll see when the quarters come out. I'm recording this a little earlier than usual, so I don't know. Maybe I'll be wrong. But this is three weeks in a row that Darby was in the main event, and he delivered in the other two. So if this quarter hour didn't do well, you can't blame Darby, right? Then maybe you could say, okay, people didn't believe in Press 10 Vance. I don't know. But I have no problem putting Darby in the main event. They followed the same pattern the last three weeks. Jericho in the middle of the show, hot action opener, Darby in the main event. And Darby is delivered each time. Sometimes delivering more viewers in 18 to 49 than anything else in the show, with the exception of Jericho. And even beating Jericho in some cases, in some of the demos. So no, I didn't have a problem with this main event. 
You can't have it both ways. You can't tell me that they give away too much and do too much on the show and then didn't do a good enough main event and didn't have a good enough opponent. You can't play both sides of that coin. So the match was fine. Um, it had a really good finish where uh, Press 10 Vance has been using the full Nelson as a finish. Um, he put the full Nelson on Darby. Darby tried to do that knee escape where you put your knee between your legs and then push down on the knee. That's an old pro wrestling technique to escape a uh, full Nelson. Didn't work. So he climbed up the turnbuckle and fell backwards on top of Vance. It wasn't the cleanest looking pin. But look, it's not the, the main event of Wrestle Kingdom. Okay? It was just a little three-star match, so it's not that big a deal. And uh, and Darby gets the win using a finish that we've seen before in some of Darby's other matches. So I thought it was good enough. Ethan Page got involved in this. And, of course, if you remember, Ethan Page had the Evolve feud with Darby that really put Darby Allen on the map. So if there's one cool thing that you can do with Ethan Page in this company, it's probably matching him up with Darby. There's history there. And you know that Tony's a big enough nerd that they'll probably acknowledge that history as well. So uh, Page and Scorpio Sky attack. Darby and uh, 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 Sting, uh, you know, and then Archer comes down. And uh, after Page and Scorp get the best of Darby and Sting, Archer and Press 10 come back down and run the heels off. And that was Dynamite. It was a pretty good show. So uh, we'll take a look at the quarters when we get a hold of them. And then we look forward to Blood and Guts next week. And uh, we see what kind of number that does. I think it's going to do very well. MLW Fusion will go through it quickly this week. As uh, they're getting ready to take a break and start their next quote-unquote season anyway. And we've got a little uh, a little bit more to get to on the show. And I'm kind of running a little short on time. But we opened up with uh, Filthy Tom Lawlor and Marshall Von Erich. A feud history recap of these two. Remember, Lawlor turned heel on Marshall Von Erich. That's how he originally went heel, by hitting him with a chair. And then he broke his leg or his knee a couple of weeks ago and caused that knee injury. So they went through the whole history between Filthy Tom and Marshall, Von, both Von Erichs, really. Because uh, later on, the main event was going to be Filthy Tom versus Marshall Von Erich. So we saw the turn. We saw the leg attack and all that. First match was Dom Guarini versus Ross Von Erich. Now, I'm confused. Kevin Von Erich said a couple weeks ago he's sending Ross to Noah to train with with his friend Keiji Muto. I thought that meant Ross was going to Noah to like work a tour or something. But I guess it was just an MLW storyline because Ross Von Erich is back and the commentators were saying how he had just returned from Japan and he learned all these new techniques from Muto. So uh, I got worked. I really thought Ross was going to Japan. What the hell was I thinking? So a lot of grappling here. And Ross kind of held his own with Garini, both from a shoot perspective and a kayfabe perspective. So this was a decent little match. Uh, Ross Von Erich picks up the win. There's a big brawl afterwards with Marshall and the rest of Team Filthy, which leads to a, a, a pre-tape with uh, Tom Lawler. He is angry at Violentist Forever. He can't believe that they lost the first match tonight here, first singles match. So he says, I got to make a phone call and guarantee that we get victory tonight. We don't know who he's calling. But Violence is Forever looks very happy about it. So it turns out that Filthy Tom called Tim Donahue, disgraced NBA official, who we've seen in MLW before. So he meets up with Donahue, who's wearing his referee outfit, and he hands him an envelope filled with cash and tells him, get the thing done. And this is incredible to me. 
You have disgraced NBA official Tim Donahue banned from the league, did time in prison. And look, the man has a right to make a living, right? He did his time. He went to jail. He's out of jail. And now he's in MLW as a dirty referee who is on the take. I find this hilarious. And I can't believe that mainstream sports media and, you know, the NBA media and NBA Twitter haven't picked up on this yet. People are going to be very self-righteous about it and they're going to say that he shouldn't be able to profit off of his crime or whatever. I think this is hilarious and a ton of fun. Good on Tim Donahue. Get in the bag from Court Bauer and MLW making a couple bucks as a dirty ref. We had Hio D.L.A. Park versus Bukudao. We saw Bukudao get a big win last week over TJP in that big grudge match. He cut a promo here, a pre-tape promo. He said, TJP, I used to love you. TJP, I hate you now. And uh, he got another big win over Hio D.L.A. Park here, which was not good for Selena De La Renta. Every time uh, her charges lose a match, the uh, El Jefe is not pleased with her and her performance as a manager. So this was another loss for uh, Selena and Los Parks and uh, and bad news for Selena for whatever's going to happen with this Azteca underground nonsense. Um, Alicia Atut says there's a lot happening in MLW. Dragon Gate's in the mix. Rev Pro and Andy Quilden is in the mix. And they're all going to be part of the new championship committee. And of course, the new season starts July 10th at the ECW Arena. Of course, they call it the 2800 Arena or whatever it is. And uh, then she welcomes in Marshall Von Erich. Filthy Tom comes in and with Tim Donahue. And they demand that this man take a piss test. Because Lawler says there's no way that this man with an injured leg can attain this kind of physique. So I want to make sure everything's on the up and up. And I demand that this man take a drug test. And I have Tim Donahue here to, to overlook this. So here's your cup. Go piss in the cup. Which is funny for a number of reasons. Filthy Tom has been popped for PEDs before. So that's funny as hell. Tim Donahue is a crooked ref. That's funny as hell. And then Marshall Von Erich came back with the sample. And threw it in Tom Lawler's face. And that was funny as hell. So Tom Lawler has piss in his face. Tim Donahue exit stage left. He didn't even referee the match. He was just there to oversee the piss test. So Tim Donahue basically showed up to MLW, watched Marshall Von Erich piss into a, into a cup. He was basically there. He got paid off by Tom Lawler to look at Marshall Von Erich's cock. And then Marshall Von Erich threw the piss in Tom Lawler's face anyway. Totally absurd. But oddly fun. Leo Rush no-showed his presser. Myron Reed was upset about that. Says it's a lack of respect. Leo Rush doesn't respect MLW. He doesn't respect the middleweight title. And he doesn't respect him. And he's mad as hell. He's going to win that title. We go to Hammerstone. Hammerstone still wants Jacob Fatu. And he says he's the only man who could take him down. That, of course, is the biggest match MLW could put together. And we're building towards that now. So, um, they announced that Leo Rush has been fined for skipping out on the press conference. And then we had Marshall Von Erich. Versus Filthy Tom Lawler. That was our main event. And Lawler basically won it clean. I mean, he put Marshall in a uh, wacky leg lock. 
And of course, Marshall Von Erich is doing the gimmick where he has the injured knee, so he was forced to tap. And of course, that injured knee is a result of an attack by, you know, Team Filthy, so uh, that was kind of Marshall's out. And then we had the big post-match brawl to end the show. Violence is forever. Comes in, Ross is in there, and then ACH makes the save for his buddies, the Von Erichs, as they are aligned in the storyline as being uh, Texas pals. So ACH comes down to make the save as we have a wild brawl to end the show. And uh, that was MLW. Decent enough episode, but I think we're all looking forward to the tapings in Philadelphia at the uh, at the ECW arena to freshen things up. And that's Thursday TV Reviews. We'll be back with a little bit of New Japan and a little bit of All Japan. All right, we're back. What do we got here? Manscaped. Support for the Voice of Wrestling flagship podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. They obsess over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide, and we have an exclusive offer for you, the Voice of Wrestling flagship listeners. 20% off plus free shipping with this code, FLAGSHIP. Use the code FLAGSHIP at manscaped.com. Manscaped hooked me up with a bunch of tools and formulations from their Perfect Package 3.0 kit. Uh, Listen, we've all had disasters when we're trimming our balls, okay? Well, if you're a dude anyway, you've had disasters when you were trimming your balls, okay? Uh, With Manscaped, you can eliminate that. They've created the best ball hair trimmer ever, the Lawn Mower 3.0. Their third-generation trimmer features cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. I now feel confident shaving my boys. Listen, that's what the ad read says. In addition, this trimmer comes with an LED light for more precise shave and is waterproof to make your shower clean and easy. Don't use the same trimmer that you use on your face for your balls. That's just disgusting. I came in and your hair was in the toilet water. Disgusting. I said my piece, Chrissy. Um, The Lawnmower 3.0 comes inside their brand new Perfect Package 3.0, which comes with everything you need to keep trimmed. Cut free and smelling nice down below. The Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0 also includes Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. I use this. It's excellent. I love the Crop Preserver. You already put deodorant on your armpits. Why are you not putting deodorant on the smelliest part of your body? Listen, ad copy guy. You speak for yourself. My balls are not the smelliest part of my body. Uh, and yes, your balls stink. Now listen, there are times balls can stink. I can guarantee you, Crate out there in Death Valley, very stinky balls right now. It's 140 degrees. His balls stink. But I don't know if the balls are the smelliest part of my body. Probably because I use the Crop Preserver, the anti-chafing ball deodorant moisturizer. Speaking of sweaty and stinky balls, I am thankful for the Croc Reviver. This product, along with the Crop Preserver, keeps my balls from sweating, smelling, and sticking. Manscaped threw in two free gifts into their perfect package, a pair of high-performance Manscaped boxer briefs that will keep your junk feeling fresh all day, and a travel bag to store all of your grooming tools. Trim that junk of yours 
Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code FLAGSHIP at manscaped.com. FLAGSHIP, manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. You get 20% off and free shipping with the code FLAGSHIP at manscaped.com. 20% off free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code FLAGSHIP. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. New Japan. Wrestling Don Taku coming up. Uh, let's see. That's a two-parter. That is the third and the fourth. So that is Monday and Tuesday. So late Sunday night in the States. Late Monday night uh, slash Tuesday morning in the States as well. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion that Western interest in New Japan is at maybe a decade-long low. I mean, that's all anecdotal. That's all in the eye of the beholder. I know that on our social media, we are getting, um, you know, less feedback on New Japan than ever. On our website, our New Japan reviews are getting less hits than probably ever in the history of the site. Our New Japan year in review, um, I don't know if it sold a record low number of copies, but it definitely was down from the last couple of years and amongst the lowest selling copies of the book. So there is some factual evidence that I could add to that argument that interest levels in New Japan are are at minimum, you know, pretty low right now and maybe the lowest they've been in the, you know, Kadani slash Bushi Road slash Okada, whatever you want to call it, era. Uh, so we can come with some facts to support that. The question is what's going on? And I think there may be a couple different things. The one thing I see people pointing to is displeasure at the champion, Will Ospreay. You know my stance on that. I think that's overblown. I think that is an overrated theory. I think that there are for sure some people who may have canceled their subscriptions or stopped paying attention to New Japan when they built it up Willow Spray. Um, but I don't think it's a statistically significant number. I think it's a number that's probably in the hundreds. Uh, a very loud, vocal couple of hundred people. But again, when you're talking about the level of business that New Japan does, it's not really a statistically significant number. Um, you know, if you look at Will Ospreay on Twitter when he tweets about New Japan or whatnot, he'll have some people in there that are coming at him for, um, you know, his, his, his dramatics or whatnot, but it's overwhelmingly positive if you read replies and comments. Uh, so, you know, I, I just... I don't think there's an overwhelming number of people who are anti-Will Ospreay. Now, there's certainly some, and I do think it is a small contributor to the New Japan malaise. Now, I think what there's... I think when it comes to Will Ospreay, there's more to the idea that it's not so much the people who have given up New Japan because Will Ospreay's champion, but I do think there's a lot of people who maybe are watching and following New Japan as they've always been but simply don't talk about Willow Spray because they don't want the drama that comes along with that conversation. When it comes to places like Twitter, you have a circle. And if you don't want to offend anyone in your circle or you just don't want to invite drama from another circle, you're going to avoid certain topics. I think when it comes to Willow Spray, there's a lot of people 
who just don't want to talk about him because, number one, everyone is exhausted of Willow Spray discourse. Everyone. Number two, they don't want to invite that bullshit into their circle, into their little world. So it's just easier not to talk about him, even if you're watching the matches. And I think that aspect is far more significant than the number of people who have canceled subs or whatnot. Because if there was any evidence that Will Ospreay was overwhelmingly negative to New Japan's business, they wouldn't have pushed him this hard. They wouldn't have put the title on him. I don't think it's statistically significant. Uh, So what other factors do we have? I think the biggest factor, and we're all overlooking this one, and it's obvious and staring us in the face, is the fucking pandemic. New Japan has just not been the same company since they restarted, going back to last spring, or last summer, whatever it was. The New Japan Cup in the empty buildings. And then the Naito Evil Feud. And the puzzling booking decisions and directions they've taken since the restart. Combined with clap crowds and shitty atmosphere. If there's one thing that we've learned that's definitive in COVID wrestling, it's atmosphere is so important. When did Dynamite get their ratings back on track? When they improved their atmosphere. First with the jobbers at ringside making noise. Then when they were allowed to bring fans in the building. When did WWE improve their ratings for Raw and SmackDown? The Thunderdome and the improvement in the atmosphere, right? Atmosphere is so important, and COVID wrestling has proven that. And the atmosphere for these New Japan shows stinks. It stinks. It's just not the same. It's great that they have fans for now. More state of emergencies in Japan. More empty arenas. You know, all Japan's just ran a couple empty arena shows. There's new restrictions. I mean, we're not going to get into all that today. But Japan seems to be going backwards and not forwards when it comes to COVID and vaccinations. So we're not even making progress on this. But I think the most obvious factor is the pandemic and the shitty atmosphere and the shitty booking since the restart. Some of which has been caused by the pandemic. Limited roster. Not as many foreigners, smaller crew, less to work with, booking plans thrown awry when they had to shut down. Now they're rushing a lot of the booking plans that they had planned. COVID is the number one reason New Japan has this, uh, you know, loss of interest over the last, you know, why are we ignoring the primary reason? I think a lot of people are. It's not Willow Spray. It's not, um, you know, the overabundance of Road 2 shows. Again, I think that has a small effect as well. But people ignored Road 2 shows all the time. That's nothing unique or new. There's just more Road 2 shows to ignore than there was previously. But um, it's when people are ignoring the big shows, like the two shows we have coming up. And we'll see how much interest that Wrestling Dantaku generates. Remains to be seen early next week. But I do agree that people have ignored these Road 2 shows. There's just too many of them. And, you know, you have people who don't watch them to begin with. And now the people who were staying up to date with Road 2 shows in the past, they're not even watching them either. So that's a small factor, too. People aren't talking about the tours. Willow Spray's a small factor. I agree. But the primary factor here is COVID. COVID. 
and the atmosphere and the booking, the puzzling booking decisions. Western fans, by and large, did not enjoy the Naito Evil feud. They didn't. Western fans. And that's what we're talking about here. Loss of interest among Western fans. Western fans were put off by Will Ospreay giving a cutter to B. Priestley to write her out of the company. They didn't like it. Western fans think that a lot of this King of Pro Wrestling stuff has been very silly. From the rollout to, you know, the matches that have happened since. Dakota Ibushi title reign. Bizarre from start to finish. The combined titles to begin with. And the world championship. Western fans have rejected that as well. It's COVID and it's booking. This does not feel like the same company that it felt like pre-shutdown. That's the issue. I wrote about it extensively in the book that less of you bought than ever. It's a new company. It's a new era. You combine all of that change with the bad atmosphere that COVID brings to the table and what you have is a promotion that simply does not feel like the promotion it once was. This does not feel like your big brother's New Japan. This is something new. This is something different. It's something that a lot of people haven't enjoyed. And oh, by the way, the atmosphere fucking stinks because of COVID. And interest in wrestling during COVID, you know, has been down, period. Why? The atmosphere. People don't want to watch wrestling with clap crowds or no crowds. The atmosphere matters. The promotions and the places that have nailed the atmosphere have done better than the ones that haven't. So, um, I think those are the factors. But, we will find out this weekend. Because there's some big matches. And we'll see if sort of the buzz or the interest level goes up for these cards. I'm sure our reviews on our site will do better for the two Dantaku shows. And uh, I'm sure Willow Spray and Shingo will be, you know, gift all over the place on Twitter. And we'll see. I think it's a little too early to start throwing up a bunch of red flags. But if these Dantaku shows don't get. Uh, any kind of attention and it's still a situation where you're waking up on Wednesday and you're like, oh shit, New Japan just had two shows I wouldn't even have known. Then I think it's a really bad sign. So, uh, we'll see. Dantaku night one, Hiroshi Tanahashi defends the never title against Jay White. I mean, 50-50 match, I'd say. It can go either way. Um, you can make an argument for Tanahashi. You can make an argument for White. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a coin flip match. Depends what direction they want to take the Never title. They're trying to establish the Never title as a drawing title because they don't have the IC title around for that role anymore. And I think that's Tanahashi's purpose here. But uh, they may move on to White. The thing is, you know, drawing full crowds isn't even within... There is no light at the end of the tunnel in Japan. So... I don't even know how to break down these booking decisions, to be honest with you. Taichi versus Tamatanga in a ladder match. That's with the uh, the Iron Fingers up top. And New Japan has been trying different things. You know, they had the uh, 
all the King of Darkness gimmicks have been not King of Darkness. I call it that because they did, you know, the King of Darkness gimmick with the King of Pro Wrestling match the other night with uh, Evil and Yano. But, you know, you're going to see more stuff like this. I really think this is the Dick Togo influence. Um, I don't think it's just a product of COVID and trying to be more creative. I think a lot of these wacky ideas would have gotten through anyway, and this is one of them. Zack Sabre Jr. versus Tangaloa beneath that. Tangaloa is very much an improved wrestler, and I think that Zack Sabre Jr. versus Tangaloa can be a real dark horse match. And then the undercard tags. LIJ versus United Empire. So that's Will Ospreay and Shingo. One last face-off before they uh, take on each other in the, in the, in the title match the night, you know, one night later. Um, Aaron Hanare has looked good. I like his new look. I like the way he's carrying himself. He's the pin-eater for the group, as we all expected he would be. But, you know, give that some time. He's the low man now. This still counts as an elevation. He's in a better position than he was when he was just random roster member who was eating pins. And I do think they see something in him. So, you know New Japan, it's, it's they're slow with their pushes. Okada showing yo versus Despi, Minoru Suzuki, and Yoshinobu Katamoru. And then the opener is Tenzan, Master Wato, Taguchi, and Yano versus uh, the Bullet Club foursome of Togo, Evil, Ishimori, and Yujiro. Again, limited rosters. They don't have their full crews. Guys wrestling that normally wouldn't be wrestling. Uh, shorter shows, six-match show. You know, people aren't real excited about New Japan right now. Night two. Which, of course, Will Ospreay versus Shingo. Ospreay's going to win. And then he's going to face Okada at the, at the Dome. And you know, he could lose that one. I could see a scenario where he gets this one defense under his belt and then loses it back to Okada and then we go into G1 uh, with Okada as champion and then maybe do Naito versus Okada again at the Dome. Um, that's a possibility. Whether Will Ospreay gets by Okada or not, I don't think he's going to have a long title reign. That would surprise me. But I do think he's going to beat Shingo. Their last uh, couple of matches have obviously been great and they've also been different. Remember, Osprey took 70 to 80% of the last match for Shingo. So I think this one will be different too. Um, it's impossible for these guys not to have a great match. So I'm looking forward to it. I really am. Um, you know, my interest level in New Japan, I can tell you that for me, it's the COVID, it's the clap crowds, and it's the booking. That's what's hurt my interest in New Japan. It's not Will Ospreay for me. I think Will Ospreay is probably the best wrestler in the world. Will Ospreay is probably my favorite wrestler to watch in the world. I don't like that they, you know, what they've done with the title. I don't like basically how the company's been booked for the last year. And the COVID stuff is really starting to wear me down. Especially when you can put on TNT on Wednesday nights and it just looks like regular wrestling and feels like regular wrestling. It hurts everything else in comparison from an atmosphere standpoint. So, um, you know, it's just, you know, it's it's Japan's further behind. There's nothing you can do about it. Despi defends the junior title versus Yo. He will win and he should win. I really think they need to continue going full steam ahead with Despi and attempt to elevate him from that, you know, quote-unquote mid-level junior spot 
into a legitimate star with Hiromu out again. And the thing about Hiromu, I mean, let's be honest. This is probably going to be a career-long thing where he's constantly injured. I mean, with his style. Unless he slows things down, and then he really isn't Hiromu if he does that. There's really not much else there from a bell-to-bell standpoint. You know, he's you know he's got to learn to get over in the ring in a different way. He has enough charisma to do it. But he is who he is, and that's going to lead to injuries. And there's not a lot of depth on the junior side, especially when it, there's no foreigners. So Despy should win, and I think he will win. And I think that they should. And it's hard in the middle of a pandemic to make a star. Uh, it hasn't stopped them with the heavyweights to just keep doing what they're doing. So go full steam ahead with Despy and see what happens. And then the rest of this card is a nothing card. Uh, nothing but tags. We've got Tanahashi, Tenzan, Wato, Taguchi, and Yano versus Bullet Club. It's the same foursome from the night before, plus Jay White. Uh, it's basically the same match from the night before, the opener, with the additions of Tanahashi and White, who were in the singles match the night before. Um, LIJ versus Empire. Again, same match from the night before, minus Willow Spray and Shingo. Okada and Sho versus Suzuki and Kanemaru. See the trend? Same match from the night before, minus Despi and Yo. And then the opener is Dukai, Taichi, and Zack Sabre Jr. versus Jado, Tamatanga, and Tangaloa. So, um, Jado getting in the mix night two along with Dukey. So, look, that's a two-match show. You know, and you, you, you hope you get what you get out of the tags. The one thing about the big New Japan shows is they're thrifty with these shorter cards. You're in and out in two and a half hours, which is good. Um, we know that the second night sold out, you know, within 24 hours of putting tickets on sale. So, um, I don't know where night one stands on that. So as far as Japanese interest versus American interest, or I should say Western interest in new Japan, look, the Japanese fans are buying the tickets that are available. Again, we don't know if Willow spray versus Shingo would have filled this building under normal circumstances. We don't know that. There's no way of knowing that. By selling all of the limited tickets in less than 24 hours, that's kind of a clue that they were going to draw a big house. But you can't say it definitively. But, you know, it's like, it sure seems like the interest level in Japan hasn't waned at all, while the interest level in the West, you can definitely make that argument. I'll be right back. All right, we're back. Champion Carnival catch-up. I watched the shows on the 24th and the 25th. Uh, the 24th was from Shinkiba First Ring, uh, the second show of the tour in Shinkiba First Ring. That had four tournament matches. And then the next night on the 25th is where they had to run Empty Arena in the same building. They drew 150 fans the first night. Remember, that's that tiny building that only holds two or 300 fans. But then the new restrictions went into place. So they weren't able to have any fans the second night. That had four tournament matches in addition to Shima defending the junior title against Hikaru Sato. So those are the two matches, uh, two shows that I watched. They were late getting up the show from the 28th, which was video on demand. So I wasn't able to watch that before I recorded. And I have not watched the show from the 29th either. So we're a little bit behind, uh, which is why I saved All Japan for the last segment. 
my info is a little behind. I haven't watched all the shows, but if you're interested in my breakdown of the 24th and the 25th, well, you're going to get it. So we'll start with the 24th, and actually we'll start with my overall thoughts from the last time that we, we had a show. My thoughts remain the same. Uh, the carnival has been a shit ton of fun. We're not getting a ton of quote-unquote notebook matches, but everything is, you know, three-star range or higher. There's been a lot of matches that have flirted with notebook territory. I know a lot of people loved Kento Miyahara versus Zeus. Um, that seems to be the consensus match of the tournament. I thought that was a great match. Well, not a great match, although it was a very good match. Just below great. I'd put it at three and three quarters, maybe four if you're being generous. Um, there have been some other matches as well. I think we have, in my view, the clear-cut best match of the tournament so far on one of the two shows that I'm about to review. So I'll hold the suspense and uh, tell you what that one was as we go through the shows. I think for the most part, everyone has performed well. Some people have performed better than others. I think Kohei Sato looks like he's completely washed up. I uh, haven't loved his work, but it's not like he's been a complete embarrassment or has dragged things down. Suji Ishikawa, look, uh, we've been talking about this for about a year. He's not what he used to be, but I think he's been serviceable and, and, and borderline good. And then we have Suwama, who I've been very critical of all year. He's getting a lot of praise for this tournament, and he has been good. He's been good in the tournament. I think the thing about Suwama is this. He's clearly lost a step. I know a lot of people don't want to admit that, but he's not what he was physically even a year ago or two years ago. Last year he had a horrible carnival, but everyone did. So I'm not going to hold that against him. This year he's been better. But the thing about Suwama at this stage of his career, it is almost completely dependent on the opponent and how much effort levels, and in particular, how much punishment the opponent wants to take. That's what every Suwama match comes down to. If he's facing another guy like him who's on the downside, a Kohei Sato or an Ishikawa or someone who's just not as skilled, uh, the match just isn't as good. Now, if he's in there with Yuma Aoyagi or he's in there with Kento Miyahara and they're bumping all over the place for him and they're eating his chops and they're taking big bumps and they're selling like a motherfucker and making him look like a monster, he can go out there and still have a good match. Okay? So when I'm critical of Suwama... I'm not telling you that he's out there putting up duds. I mean, his title matches earlier this year, which I wasn't a huge fan of, that I'm probably the low man on in comparison to, uh, you know, most other reviewers and observers, at least the people that uh, write our reviews for our site and whatnot, the Yuma Aoyagi match in January. I didn't love it. Uh, the Ashino match, a couple weeks later, again, didn't love it. The Kohei Sato match. Uh, didn't like it at all. In fact, I like the Yoshitatsu match from a couple weeks ago better than all of them. Now, I don't think any of them were terrible matches, but I think they had a lot of flaws. And I think a lot of the flaws are covered up by Suwama putting together very exciting closing stretches. He does those German suplexes, and he does all these near falls. And uh, I do think the referee has been a problem. You know, I talked that to death at the time back in January. Uh, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, the, the ref is just uh, is as washed up as Suwama is. But, um, or even more so, you know, I'm talking about Wada, of course. Um, longtime All Japan ref. I think he's hurt a lot of those matches uh, as much or, or even more than Suwama did early in the year with his 
uh, being out of position and being very slow to count. But um, but look, you know, Suwama, he's just he's not getting around as well. And I do think, uh, you know, he's at that point in his career where uh, his opponent is really the one responsible for whether the match is going to be something that's just a match or something that's going to be pretty decent. And I think that was exemplified on uh, these last two shows that I watched, both on the 24th and the 25th. So let's go through them a little bit. 24th, Koji Doi and Shinjiro Otani go to the double countout. I like how they threw the double countout finish into the mix. They hadn't done that yet to this point in the tournament. And this was a uh, no, good little match. And good for Doi not to just eat another pin. He's not going to score a lot of points. But to go to a double countout against Otani, I think, is uh, is a good look for Doi. We had uh, Shotaro Ishino. He defeats Suji Ishikawa. This was encouraging because Ishino, as Rich and I talked about, really got off to a lousy start. Um in the tournament and looked like he was going to be an also ran. So he finally picked up a second win here. There's more there, you know, there's bad news to talk about with him moving forward, but at least at this point he picked up a win against Ishikawa and that's a nice win. Kento Miyahara beat Kohei Sato. I think Sato just physically looks like shit and uh, is, is basically washed up at this point. And Miyahara picked up a win there. And again, these are all, you know, all three of these matches are probably in the three, three and a quarter range. Uh, just solid stuff up and down this tournament. And then the main event was Suwama versus Yuma Aoyagi. I actually like this better than their title match from January. You know, I thought that was a vastly overrated match, completely uh, saved by uh, a dramatic final few minutes. I, I didn't like the meat of the match in January. I didn't. I thought Wada was awful as the referee in that match and really hurt it a lot. But again, Aoyagi did a good job here flying around for Suwama and taking big bumps. And Suwama beats him again. And he wins the main event of this first show in Shinba uh, first ring. And that was a pretty good match, probably in the uh, three-and-a-half star range, which takes us to the next day, which was the 25th. Again, no fans. What they did, uh, tight focus, uh, camera focus, and they had extras or wrestlers from the undercard, whoever, Around ringside making some noise. I don't think it was piped in noise. I think it was real human noise. So the atmosphere really wasn't that bad. Plus it's Shinba, uh, Shinkiba first ring. Which is such a small building. With um, with not a lot of uh, crowd noise anyway. That your brain kind of doesn't expect it to be a crazy atmosphere in that little building. If you've watched shows from there before. You know what I mean? So uh, from that perspective I really didn't. You know, the, the, the empty arena it, uh, deal wasn't really that um, distracting. Ashino won over Otani in the first match. So Ashino, again, picking up some wins here. But we've got bad news coming. Uh, I'll get to that. But he did beat Otani here. Now, interesting, Otani has been pulled from the tournament with a quote-unquote injury. And... Immediately, a lot of people thought, okay, is this some kind of work? Well, if you look at who he's faced in the tournament so far, Aoyagi, Miyahara, Jake Lee, Ishikawa, Doi, remember the double count out, and then the loss to Ashino that I just noted here. Then he faced Suwama and lost to Suwama and was pulled from the tournament at that point. Who is not listed among those opponents? Kohei Sato. 
Kohei Sato. Politically, could those two men just be in a situation where they can't face each other? Remember, Kohei Sato ousted from 0-1 earlier this year. Was this an issue where neither guy would job to the other? Is this an issue where neither guy would even get in the ring with each other? Is there bad blood? If there's bad blood, have they managed to coexist on the tour while agreeing, hey, look, we're not getting in the ring with each other? Or was there some kind of political deal? That screams work to me from that perspective. Maybe Otani's really hurt. I think they just, for whatever reason, uh, Otani and Kohei Sato just couldn't get in the ring with one another. So Otani finishes up the tournament with four points, only two wins, but he did wrestle well, and the Ashino match was very good. Uh, maybe the best, let me think about this and look at his matches. Was this the best Ashino match of the tournament? Let me take a quick look. Uh, the Jake Lee match, they did a gimmick. Yagi, Miyahara, that match was good. It was right up there with his best, I'd say. The Otani match. And remember, I haven't seen Zeus or Suwama yet. Those are the two shows I haven't seen. And right when Oshino started getting some momentum, he wins three out of four. He beats Miyahara. We talked about that last week. He beats Ishikawa. He beats Otani. He had the one trip up against Kohei Sato. But it's like, all right, he's won three out of four. What do they do? He comes out his next two matches, loses to Zeus, loses to Suwama. So he's still sitting there with six points. With eight matches in the can. A complete non-factor. In the standings. Or the table. If you're European. And it's disheartening. At that point. Why even beat Miyahara? Why even beat Miyahara? If you're going to lose to Zeus and Suyama. And Suama. And not be a factor. It doesn't make any sense. The booking of this guy is puzzling. And here's what these motherfuckers are going to do. Miyahara is going to win. And win the title. And Ashino's going to get a title match because he beat him in the carnival. Despite the fact he couldn't beat anybody else. It's a joke. They constantly shoot themselves in the foot. And it's frustrating. And I know he did the deal where he shook Suwama's hand. And now they're going to be tag team partners. After, you know, they had been rivals all last year. And that's all well and good. But this guy shouldn't be a dopey tag wrestler. They should be trying to make new stars. And if it doesn't take, it doesn't take. I know that there's Ashino detractors. Oh, he's short. He doesn't have a good body. Wrestle one. Nobody's a star from there. I understand all that. But give it a try. Especially with the fresh coat of paint and the turn. Sato beat Ishikawa in the battle of the former Twin Towers. I guess not former, right? They could team again if they wanted to. Um, Shima defeats Hikaru Sato. I really enjoyed this. I didn't think it was as good as Shima's title win over Iwamoto from... Let me grab the date on that. The Shima title win over Iwamoto, I think it was in February? Yeah, February 20th. To this point... Probably my All Japan match of the year. I know there's not a lot to choose from. Because the Carnival, while it's been good, again, um, not a lot of super high-level stuff in the Carnival. And I haven't enjoyed Suwama's title matches, so then what else do you have to choose from? 
You know what I mean? So to me, Shima Iwamoto has been the All Japan Match of the Year. And some other contenders, Miyahara and Aoyagi versus Zeus and Iri from March 14th for the tag titles. Talked about that briefly last week. And the main event of this show, Miyahara Suwama, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, which I think has been the match of the tournament. Those would be the contenders. But this match against Sato, Shima successfully defends. Good, solid match. Three and a quarter, three and a half range. Sato's a guy I've come around on over the last two or three years. And this was a good change of pace. It's just a shame it happened in front of no fans. Jake Lee beat Zeus. Good match. Lee hasn't had a great match yet. He's doing a lot of character work. I defended him last week. I'll defend him again. I thought this was a good match. And that's a good win over Zeus. And this was a really strong show because I thought all the carnival matches were good. I enjoyed the Shima title defense. And then the main event, Kento Miyahara over Suwama, I thought was the match of the tournament. And the first notebook match of the tournament as well. So I went four stars on it. And again, you know, Miyahara, he sold his ass off. He bumped. He let Suwama paw at him like a bear. And it really made the match. And Miyahara just has a presence and a charisma that nobody else in the company has. I say it all the time and it's true. And he raises everything up to his level. He hasn't worked as hard as he has in the past this year. Or last year for that matter. At least the second half of the year. Even so, he just shines at a level that no one else in this company does. It's just the truth. And I do hope he wins the tournament. And wins the title. And then maybe you could have Jake Lee. Now look. You want to have Jake Lee beat him and then win the title? I'm not going to be mad at that. I can't sit here and scream and yell about them not trying to make a star with Ashino. And then get mad at them if they do it with Jake Lee. If they want to put the pedal to the metal with Jake Lee right now. I'm fine with that. I think I would have Miyahara get back to the top though. And then have Lee unseat Miyahara. I think that's the path I would take. But I'm okay either way. But Miyahara Suwama was tremendous. I mean, Suwama threw him around. Uh, Miyahara's uh, facial expressions were very good. His facials were good here. His selling was good. And, um, you know, he took down. Now, look, Suwama's another one. Last year, he got eliminated from the carnival, like, before the final night as champion. And once again... Through this match, at least, he was only sitting there with six points. Now, he ended up winning his next two. He beat Otani, and then he beat Ashino. We just talked about those two matches. So, he got right back in the mix with his next two. So, um, you know, as we head into uh, the end of this thing, we've got, uh, you know, Miyahara beat Aoyagi in the main event on the uh, on the show that was... On Thursday. Um, so he's got the 10. Suwama has 10. Jake Lee has 10. And Zeus went to a double count out with Doi. Which was huge. Because he could have really locked this thing up. And now he's sitting at 10 as well. So you've got the four main players sitting there at 10. As we. Uh... And Sato. Sato beat Otani by uh, forfeit. So he's got the 10 also. 
So, uh, congested at the top. Who's not there? Ashino. Six points. Mathematically eliminated. In fact, third to last place. Only ahead of Otani, who pulled out, and Doi, who we all knew was going to finish in last. It's just disheartening. So, as of this recording, our guys on our site don't have those reviews up for the 28th or 29th yet. Um, but look for that. Our All Japan review guys just do a tremendous job. I think the best job of anybody in the world at reviewing All Japan. So, uh, they'll get you caught up on those two shows, which unfortunately I didn't have time to watch. So, look out for those reviews. They might be posted on the site by the time you listen to this. And those guys will do a tremendous job. Uh, going over the matches from those two shows and reviewing them and setting you up for all the scenarios and everything as the carnival uh, comes to a close. And this flagship has come to a close. I want to thank our sponsors, Manscaped and MyBookie, Manscaped.com. Use code flagship, MyBookie.ag. Use code VOICES. And uh, I want to thank the producer, Andrew Rich, who helped me put this show all together today. And uh, McClunky, we'll see you next week.